So to me, global warming is a conspiracy because you've got people who are knowingly or unknowingly disseminating uh, information that is either wrong or by taken by being taken out of context. You know, if you look at a, a, a horrible, say, hurricane that's happened in the last 10 years, but you don't look at it within the last 100 years or 200 years, then you're taking it out of context. This is part three of a multi-part series where I interview Randall Carlson. If you've not seen parts one or two of the series, I recommend that you go back and check those out. Uh, either if you're watching it, which I'd recommend for this series on YouTube or Rumble, or any of your other uh, favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to subscribe to the show. Welcome back, Randall. Well, thanks for having me back, Matt. It's been a, I've had a really good time the previous uh, sessions we've done together, so I'm assuming we'll have a good time with this one too. I think so, but I'm going to throw you for a loop right from the get-go and keep you on your toes. Okay. We're going to get back into what is the meat of our discussion, but this tangent, I think, um, is perhaps both interesting and um, useful for some few people that uh, listen to the show. I've had several people either in comments or in private conversations, ask me about Freemasonry. They say, hey, but, but isn't he a Freemason? I like his work, but, but isn't he a Freemason? As if to imply somehow either that's a bad thing or that it invalidates um, some part or whole of your worldview or that we should be suspicious of you. Well, I'd like to give you the opportunity to maybe address that. Uh, why does it matter or does it that you're a Freemason? And what would you say to those that either think they've learned something about um, Freemasonry from uh, recent documentaries or by rumor. And by the way, I ask this from a place of, I mean, I don't ask it in a critical, you know me, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, my own grandfather was a Freemason. Uh, but um, so what, what do you think about that? I knew there was something about you, Matt, that I needed to be suspicious about. Your grandfather was a Freemason. Yeah, there's... Uh, if you want to talk about misinformation and disinformation, there's no subject out there that has more misinformation and disinformation associated with it than the subject of Freemasonry. And I've watched a number of these, you know, so-called exposés of Freemasonry. They're laughingly ridiculous. That's all I can say about those. I mean, it's it's taking taking the, the, the symbolism of Freemasonry and spinning this, this narrative around it that's basically completely made up, um, which you could do with, with anything. Um, you know, there's this conspiratorial aspect. I, I point out, if you go through and you look at, um, you know, and we're not going to, I know I, we kind of agreed we were not going to segue into politics, but one of the things I point out is that, you know, if you look at the people who are, pulling the strings today, and I could make name all kinds of names. I could name everybody in the Biden administration. I could name the National Health uh, Institute. I could, the World Economic Forum, we could go through all of the people, and I would defy you to show me more than, if, if there's any Freemasons in these groups at all, right? At all. Um, I don't specifically name names, but we could. I mean, sure. you know, yeah. we could say, you know, name somebody, Bill Gates. No, he's not a Freemason. 
Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab. No, yeah. he's not a free. I think. Okay. I've, yeah, he's not a Freemason. I've extensively researched and found no evidence at all that he is a Freemason okay. because in in the you know most Masons around the world are sponsored under the Grand Lodge of Britain. So anybody who is a Freemason, you're going to be able to find out pretty much if they're a Freemason. Okay. Um, but yeah. You go through, I mean, none of these people that are basically manipulating the economy, the any of this, their Freemasons aren't there. Uh, there's a, look, there's probably a scattering of them, just like there is any group. Look, I, I like to point this out. Fourteen American presidents have been Freemasons. Fourteen. Now, so we have, we just looked at the first, the father of our country, George Washington. He was a Freemason, a very active Freemason. He was... Uh, master of his lodge. Um, ben Franklin was an active Freemason. Thomas Jefferson may or may not have been. He was probably initiated in the Lodge of Nine Sisters in Paris, but there's no record of that because it may have happened like before the revolution and so much stuff was lost. So he's usually generally not claimed uh, by the fraternity as being a member of the craft. However, reading Jefferson's writings, there are some peculiar phraseology that he uses and so on that would lead one to believe that he was thoroughly familiar with the Masonic ritual. But so we could go through the last Masonic president we had. I think, did I ask you this one time? And you no, I don't know. Up? Okay. No. Who do you think was the last Masonic president of the United States of America? Uh, I might embarrass myself guessing, you know, there's talk of, uh, the, uh, what's the order that the Bushes were a part of, uh, was it at Yale or, uh, yeah, that's the, uh, Skull and Secret Bones, Soci- Skull which, and Bones not, which has nothing to do let's with be Freemasonry. Clear, that right? is not Freemasonry. They're not affiliated organizations. Have there been members of Skull and Bones that were perhaps also members of Freemasonry? Sure. But they are not affiliated organizations. But if, if what the, what the, Though the detractors who usually try to spin this conspiracy theory around Freemasonry, what will they'll do is they'll find, oh, somebody who was a member of Skull and Bones was also a member of Freemasonry. Therefore, that proves that Freemasonry is right at the core of this global conspiracy. So back to my question, who was the last Masonic president? I don't know. Come on, you could do it, Matt. I'm if I pull the... out my phone and Google, uh, I could do it. I'm putting <laughs> you on the spot. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Let's see. Um, I'm going back in time. Is it recent history? Mm, not so much. Not probably post, in your post life. World War II. Oh yes. Oh okay. Yes. Uh, Kennedy. No. Okay. Now that, I'll bring something interesting. I, I here. thought of him just because there's an assassination there. Was it in 1963, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, Kennedy, the year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy was Catholic. Remember. Yep. Now Freemasons are totally accepting and open. They have no restrictions. You can, if you're a Catholic, you can be a Freemason. However, the other side of the equation is, is that the Catholics say, no, 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 you can't be a Freemason. Oh, okay. So, but there are actually, like in my lodge, there are Catholics. So, you yeah. know, it's, uh, so no, it was not Kennedy. Okay. Uh, Nixon. No. Nixon too too was, late, huh? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I'm, no. I'm trying, I'm avoiding, yeah, okay, no. Reagan. No. Uh, dude, you're going to embarrass me if I keep guessing. Well, you, you, go ahead. Well, I, I don't want to say, Bill, I'm hoping Bill Clinton wasn't a Freemason because no, no, I want to no. have respect for the Freemasonic no, no. Bill, uh, Brotherhood. Ba- here. Bill Clinton is not a Freemason. <laughs> okay, you've, 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 you're getting close. I am. I will tell you if you give up. He's not 
Jimmy Carter. No, not Jimmy. See, see, I'm going to go through every president here, and then I'm going to be... Uh... Well... Is he still alive? No. Oh. But it wasn't one of the Bushes. No, it was not one it of the Bushes. Reagan. It was not it wasn't Reagan. It wasn't Carter, it wasn't Nixon. No. Uh, LB, LBJ. No. So who else that's, is there? That's Somebody, good. See, I, he's, he's kind of an innocuous... Well, I think of... I went to post-World War II, Dwight Eisenhower, Harry Truman... Harry Truman uh, was, yes. Harry Truman was, was okay. a, yes. In fact, he was Grand Master of Masons in Missouri, but he was not hmm. the most recent one. Oh, so, but he also dropped uh, nuclear weapons. I knew there was something evil about uh, these Freemasons. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. That was a different era. And it was not really, yeah, I mean, we could get into that. It was mostly James F. Burns who was and, and General Grove who were pushing for the deployment of the atomic bomb against Hiroshima. And they and Truman, you know, here's the thing. Look, you know, the Truman came in after uh, Roosevelt died. It was three weeks after Truman was president that he even learned about the Manhattan Project. That's right. So, I mean, you know, he was kind of like just brought in out of the out of the cold. And, you know, here's this thing. We've got this weapon. We can deploy it against Japan. And he's like, well, OK, it was kind of more that he was not the active proponent of deployment of the atomic bomb. James F. Burns was Secretary of, of State, and he was the one who was going to be tasked with sitting down and negotiating the post-war settlements, primarily with Stalin. So he wanted the atomic bomb in his back pocket. He felt like that was going to give him the leverage to get what he wanted, and he was going to be able to pull that on Stalin. Of course, Stalin already knew all about it because he had his spies here and they were, um, you know, keeping track of what was going on. I don't remember if it was, uh, was it Klaus Fuchs who was the primary spy of the uh, of the Manhattan Project? So, I mean, yeah, there was a direct pipeline of information to Stalin. So he already knew that Americans had uh, had, had developed okay, so, this vision. Okay, so we're weapons. not talking, it's after FDR and after then Truman FDR, and then Eisenhower. Truman, then it was Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford. I don't even know what years his presidency was. Well, remember, he uh, when Nixon resigned because of Watergate, Gerald Ford took over. He was vice president, and then he lost to Jimmy Carter in 76. So he was maybe president for, what, two years, something like that. But, yeah, he was he was an active Freemason. Now, let's, let's circle back to the point I made. I said there, was about four, there were 14 confirmed American presidents who were Freemasons. Out of how many American presidents now are we looking at? Forty. Yeah, well, we've seen the Trump number a lot. Yes. Um, so what, 45? Uh, depends. i got to be careful. I know my audience pretty well. They're politically uh, energized folks. Yeah, don't want to well, acknowledge uh, the, the uh, well. Well, I don't think we yeah, could. 46. Yeah, because uh, the way I look at it, I don't like, uh, without mentioning any names, can we, does he even qualify as president? Um, I mean, I remember from the Kennedy years, the best the best and the brightest. Um, I don't know what happened to that concept, but anyways, uh, fourteen American presidents. Fourteen yeah, let me, presidents. Let me in, yeah, yeah. Well, go I ahead. want to interject here and say what some people are thinking at this point, and it's that to say that fourteen of our American presidents were Freemasons doesn't somehow um, uh, shed good light upon or exonerate the idea of Freemasonry. In fact, there's plenty of people running about right now that want to demonize the history of this country to, to begin with our founders as not good men. 
and and that's maybe a separate discussion but i'll at least acknowledge that for the listener that yeah aware that there's plenty of criticism i don't accept that criticism for one and i think we've got a noble founding of this country to include and especially some of those who participated in founding the country like george washington yes. so i want to make that note and and i will certainly agree with that um i think it was is still a noble vision that america was founded on and yes it definitely has masonic uh, implications to it. And when you get into the nature of the craft, when democracy existed nowhere else in the world, the Freemasons were conducting their business according to one man, one vote. So I can't help but think that the ideas and the ideals of uh, Freemasonry did filter in to the thinking of the founding fathers. Now, if you want to characterize George Washington and Ben Franklin and John, uh, you know, John Paul Jones and Paul Revere and Lafayette and all of those guys as evil. Okay, then, you know, you can you can try to depict America as evil. But here's the problem with that. It's one thing to, to actually have an objective analysis with a historical context to these events. But so much of the criticism now is coming in the complete absence of any historical context. It's easy for us to sit here now in 2022 and look back two or three centuries ago from our perspective in the life we lead now um, compared to the millennia of barbarism that that preceded this 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 comfortable existence that we're leading here where we can where you know where we can have actual equality you know here's the problem and we could have a whole discussion about this about historical context you know, that's to me the whole thing. Um, and, and there's so much we could get into about that. But let me circle back to that 14 American presidents thing. Um, some of them were good men and some of them weren't so good men. I mean, here's the thing. You can find anybody in any position of power who has come up. You know, you don't just come into a position of power through a, in a vacuum. You know, you... To become successful, whether it's in business or politics or whatever, you've got to network, you network, you network. You've got to build your uh, accomplices, your base, your network, your, 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 your colleagues, your associates, all of that. That's part of it, right? Now, when we talk about Freemasonry, we can certainly say there's, like to me, three primary motives for, for men to become Freemasons. One is the Masons do a tremendous amount of charitable work. On average, now I don't know, I haven't seen the latest statistics, but pre-COVID, Masons in America raised a million dollars a day that would go to like the Scottish Rite Hospital for crippled and burned children. Now I would challenge anybody to go into a Scottish Rite Hospital for crippled and burned children where children are being treated for free and tell me that's satanic. Right. You know, get the <laughs> hell out of here. Right. OK, so but here's my point about the, the 14 presidents of uh, 14 uh, Masonic well, hey, wait, presidents. Real quick. Yeah, hey, uh, we'll go back to the 14 presidents. But you said there are three, maybe in your view, three I'm, primary I'm, reasons. I'm coming to, I'll okay. come back to that. OK, well, you mentioned the, charitable. Other, the charity is one. The other is that um, like the, I was uh, inferring, which is the you know, you go into the craft and essentially what you've got in the craft is. I think you've got a, a, a higher quality of people because of the fact that it draws people who are, you know, it's it's not drawing the criminals. 
You know, it's not drawing. There's a, there's a high moral uh, and ethical standard that goes with Freemasonry. And if you don't live up to that moral standard, that ethical standard, you'll get the boot. And, and there's no proselytization no, efforts none, even none. encouraged it's, among Freemasons. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Okay. You are not permitted to proselytize. Any brother who comes into the craft, it has to be of their own volition, their own motivation. They have to make that initial step. Because unlike a lot of others, like if you look at cultic type of organizations that we've seen in recent times, their proselytization is a big part of what they do. You don't find that in Freemasonry. Okay, so you've got, number one, it's got, you know, the networking. You go in there and you... You can associate with, uh, you know, fellow Masons who, for the most part, are going to be uh, have a good work ethic. They're they're going to be family men. They're going to be generally honest. Of course, there's exceptions. Of course, there's exceptions, right? But the and, th- and so there's that. There's the, there's the uh, the affiliation. A lot of them just, you know, whether it's you look at a more mercenary uh, interpretation of it, that they're just basically networking because they're ambitious and they want to. You know, they could join it. They could join the Rotary Club. They could join, you know, any number of organizations that would help as far as their um, their ambitions, their business ambitions or, you know, economic or social ambitions. So so they go in there for that reason. Um, but to th- and then, but others are just there because they really enjoy the fellowship and the brotherhood and the camaraderie, which, of course, you, you know, is you're going to find that. You know, you could go to the Elks. My grandfather was an Elk. That was why he liked it, was the friendship, the camaraderie, going, hanging out with people, playing cards, whatever they did. You know, I don't know a whole lot about the Elks, but there's the Elks, there's the Lions, there's the Knights of Columbus, which is the Catholic organization that was founded sort of as a counterpart because a lot of Catholics were going, well, we'd like to join Masonry because it looks, you know, say, well, we'll, we'll establish our own fraternal organization. Um, to provide that, you know, that sense of camaraderie and fellowship and all of that kind of stuff. Well, okay, so the third thing is that Freemasonry is a corpus of symbolism. And I think that's its primary function, is it's taken and codified all of this symbolism from another day and another time, primarily going back to the high Middle Ages. I think that modern Freemasonry had its roots in the high Middle Ages. And um, so in Freemasonry, you know, one of the things is it uses the uh, the building of Solomon's Temple as an allegory. Solomon's Temple is an allegory for civilization. And there are the builder's tools, which have moral connotations to them. For example, uh, if I knew we were going to talk about this, I would have actually gathered some of my tools. But you know what a plumb bob is? Right, a plumb bob, you know, we always use it on the building site. Um, it's a, a string with a weight on the end, so you can get a vertical, perfectly vertical line. And so, when you're holding a plumb bob and you think of it as a vector, as an arrow, it's pointing to the center of the earth and the zenith. So, by means of a plumb bob, you've you've established this this line, this fixed line, relative to your own position on earth that will point to the zenith. And you know the definition of zenith. It's going to be... Just directly over your head? Directly over your head. The meridian, maybe? The the meridian is the line. The meridian is a line that runs over your head from north to south? And it'll run through the zenith. 
and it runs through the zenith. So if, if you can't picture that, and if you're not watching and seeing our hands and you're listening and you're not seeing our hands over our heads, but the meridian line goes essentially north to south yes. directly overhead, passing through the zenith that is directly above your head. Yes. So if you're facing due south, the meridian will transect or intersect the horizon due south, and then it'll arc over your head. So that becomes now a symbol of rectitude. And if you look up the definition of rectitude, it means moral uprightness. Think about that now. Think about the plumb bob. And think about, so then you think about the, um, oh, you think about the builder's square. Now, I don't know if it's, if it's not, if it's, the, the phrase isn't used maybe as much as it used to be, but it still is, you know, like, let's say you and I do some business together. Um, and make we, a square deal. Yeah, we make a square deal. Or um, we conclude our business, you write me my final check, you hand it to me, and you, you say to me, are we square? And we say, yes, we're right. square, and we shake hands. Totally, purely right out of the Masonic ritual. So mm -hmm. the square is, um, you know, in the ritual, you say, how do Masons meet? On the square. How mm -hmm. act? By the plumb. The plumb, again, mm -hmm. moral uprightness. Uh, and then you've got... Oh, Many other references, allusions to the to the Masonic ritual. Um, oh, I could think of some like, uh, oh yeah, uh, you go in and you know your some question comes up. You go to see your boss, and your boss is grilling you about something that happened out on the job site last week. You come out of there, and your coworker goes, "Ah, oh, man, did he give you the third degree?" Hmm. Right, straight out of the Masonic ritual. How do Masons meet on the level? Right. Another builder's tool, the level. Right. Mm -hmm. So what the, the moral implication there is, is that when you come into the lodge, doesn't mm -hmm. matter what your station is in the outside world. Doesn't matter whether you're a billionaire or a plumber. When you're in the lodge, you're all you meet on the level. You meet on the level. So you can walk into a lodge. When I joined the lodge, I had retired admirals of the Navy who were in my lodge other what what year did you join 1978 and i was actually shocked that i was accepted back then because when i first went into the lodge i was 27 i was the youngest member of the lodge um at the time and you know i'm this long-haired kid and i go in there and you know i'm sitting there with these really dignified i mean the median age in the lodge was probably in the fifth well into the 50s you know so i had these distinguished gentlemen that were you know very well established. Um, like I said, um, Coleman Lantrop, he was retired Navy uh, admiral and others of that level. But they welcomed me. Um, and I, you know, my response was I became very active because I thought, wow, these guys accepted me. They must be okay, you know. Um, so, yeah, I became a Mason and then I, uh, I, entered the ranks, the, what we call the chairs, which is in the Blue Lodge. The Blue Lodge is the core of Freemasonry. It's the first three degrees. And those three degrees are um, extracted directly from several ancient orders, primarily the guild craftsmen of the High Middle Ages. Now, we need to talk a little bit about the background, which is that you know, Freemasonry really flourished during those high Middle Ages during the era of cathedral building. 
The cathedral building itself is a phenomenon that's really almost very difficult to explain, but because it was such a quantum leap within the skill set that was manifest throughout the Western world back at that time. And this is seven and eight hundred years ago, this medieval warm period, cathedral building, we're talking mid-1300s. Yeah, we're talking uh, mid-1100s up to the early 1300s, about a 150-year period, right? So you had a lot of uh, knowledge uh, that was really, when you look at it, it's kind of out of context for the times. And we should dive into that sometime um, because... You know, they were they had, for example, engineering capabilities that were sort of unprecedented. When you look at the Ogival vault of a Gothic cathedral, that's an engineering marvel. And they had developed the the, the skill set to such a high degree, and there was so much knowledge incorporated into these these this building enterprise that included geometry. Uh, really sophisticated astronomy and engineering. When the when this era came to an end in the early 1300s, which was brought about by essentially the end of the of the the medieval warm period, because all of this flourished during that warm period, where you had the extended growing season and and you know abundant crops, people were well fed, population was growing, um, people were living longer, all of that stuff. When the climate shifted in the early 1300, and we had the first phase of the Little Ice Age, what that did was brought about a series of agricultural collapses, which led to uh, famine, which led to people's immune systems becoming weak. And after like a generation or two of this, this shift from warm to cold, what happened was in, I think it was 13, 1942, I believe, was when the Black Plague uh, swept over Europe. And that was the death knell of the cathedral building era. Um, you also had some suppressions that were going on. At that time, you see there's modern Freemasonry is called speculative Freemasonry, which basically you could think of it as philosophical Freemasonry as compared to operative Freemasonry. Operative Freemasons were actually building temples and building cathedrals, right? With that end of that great cathedral building era, Freemasonry, in order to preserve its knowledge of astronomy and geometry and engineering and other things, developed this symbolic code. And the symbolic code had its roots in other ancient traditions that utilized similar symbolic codes. If you go back to the Dionysian artificers of ancient Greece or the Roman Collegium. The, the, the Dionysian artificers actually preceded, I think they go back to even Etruscan times, but they were in Phoenician times. The Dionysian artificers were the builders of sacred buildings, temples and so on. And then when Rome superseded Greece, um, the, the organization became the Roman Collegium. And a strong case can be made that a lot of the knowledge got transferred from the Dionysian artificers to the Roman Collegium. And then with the collapse of Rome, you had monasteries that sort of preserved a lot of this knowledge and information through the Dark Ages. There was a group called the Comachines that lived on an island in Italy in the Lake, the, uh, lake Como. And for centuries, there was a monastery there. 
And in that monastery, the Comachines had a whole structural hierarchical type system, not unlike Freemasonry. Then with the rise of the Middle Ages, I think that there was, and again, there's a whole very, very interesting historical study that could be made about mm -hmm. establishing this continuity between these various groups. That has not been done yet. But what has been done is it's been it's been demonstrated that the structure, the uh, the philosophical, the symbolical structure, is very similar. Do you, you know, in other words, the three degrees mm -hmm. going into the three degrees, which has been preserved and transferred over in what is called the Blue Lodge of modern Freemasonry. So you have okay. the apprentice degree, you have the craftsman degree, and you have the master's degree, which is taken straight from the the guild lodges of the Middle Ages. You mm -hmm. come in as a as an enterprise, you enter as a, an apprentice. Then after a certain period of time, you rise into ranks and you become a craftsman. And then if you keep rising, you become a master. And then a master typically, like let's say there were roughly 80 of the high Gothic cathedrals built. Each one would have its own master. And then there would be a group mm -hmm. of craftsmen and then there would be a group of initiates, the, which were the largest pool at the bottom. And then as the skill set mm -hmm. went up. And that, that structure is still found in a lot of organizations today. But in the Blue Lodge, you had not only the practical information and knowledge, like how do you build this Ogival vault? You know, how do you, uh, what's the formula that you use for the mortar? What's the mm -hmm. formula that's used in the stained glass windows, et cetera? You can go through a whole corpus of these kinds of things. Is that still preserved, this idea that there's some useful or operative or operational knowledge available oh, to I initiates? Oh, totally, I totally think okay. so, yes. Okay. Okay, so... I'm not asking it, by the way, to divulge anything. I'm just trying to, maybe from an outside perspective or a general, sure. generic level, tease out some of the... Yeah. Some of the... Uh, the meaning of, of the, right. the ceremony so or the ritual. There, there's this, the practical end of it, which is the building knowledge, the building secrets, mm -hmm. and so on. Then there's the kind of the philosophical side of it. Now, the philosophical side has drawn upon, I mean, you'll find um, roots going back to ancient Egypt and Samaria and Greece, um, you know, like the building of King Solomon's temple, biblical connections. So, you know, if you wanted to make the argument about, you know, anything, you could take the Bible and look at how many different ways you could spin the, the material that comes in the Bible, you know, depending on what kind of a scenario you're trying to um, tr trying to conjure up. Okay, so then what happens is in the post in the in the uh, in the world that came after the building uh, the the Gothic era, which now we're getting into 1300. So you've got the bubonic plague comes along and wipes out a third of the population of Europe. That was the end of the cathedral building era, right? Because now your labor pool has been decimated. Um, you know, the, 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 the social infrastructure that was in place that allowed the uh, organization on this level required to undertake the cathedral building enterprise was also decimated. So that was, that was the end of it. That was right there. That was the end of it. Is that the end of the knowledge as well? Because the, the building period ends and maybe some of the social or cultural social organizational structure that was required to do the building uh that that starts to fade due to plague and you know there's starvation and there's there's sickness but what about the the 
transmission of knowledge through this, this period of cold. This is where Freemasonry transitioned from being operative to philosophical or speculative. And so what you see is that as the, uh, the late Middle Ages and in into the Renaissance period, what see, there's not a lot of information only because you had a period there where mm-hmm. Freemasonry was uh, basically outlawed. I mean, it was considered heresy and it was going against the dictates of the church. And so it was that attitude that really drove Freemasonry underground. Um, and some of the Freemasons, though, did get caught. I'm not saying this is an indictment of Freemasonry, but some Freemasons get caught up in other secret societies that have specific aims to overthrow governments, for example, and not just the good kind as we view it from an American perspective, but, you know, the French Revolution takes a really ugly turn. And some of the impulse that was more radical, more, um, more intentionally violent was rooted in other secret organizations like the Illuminati. I know that that word carries a lot of baggage uh, today and everyone usurps it for their own purposes uh, and through various organizations that share both uh, views or names. But um, whether or not there's much overlap is an entirely different question. But, you know, one of the things I write about in my book in trying to tease out some of the history of Marxism, which I'm an opponent of, is some of the, as you mentioned earlier, context, historical context, because context matters. But some people have mistaken my uh, use of, I mean, I I talk about some of the Freemasons getting involved with the Illuminati that was a precursor in the decades leading up to some of the ideological or philosophical worldview that, that then influences Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and others. However, I wasn't directly intending to indict Freemasonry or Freemasons per se. It was simply a context that was important. They were two completely different organizations. And could could there have been members of the Illuminati that were Freemasons? Sure. Just like, for example, we could say, well, Richard Nixon was a Quaker. Well, do we indict Quakers because of the fact that Richard Nixon was a Quaker? Or um, uh, what's his name Um, that is a Mormon? Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, yeah. So do we? Well, you don't indict him because he's a Mormon, just because of his political behavior recently. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> I, in other words, I don't judge Mormonism based yeah. on the fact that Mitt Romney was a Mormon. And right. you could probably go through any group and find disreputable individuals in any group. Sure. Right. Let's circle. Some some of the founders of Mormonism were Freemasons. That's right. Joseph Smith was a Freemason. Yeah. Uh, um, what's his name? Brigham Young was a Freemason, to my understanding. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I made the point about the 14 presidents being Freemasons, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But here's yeah. another uh, true authentic statistic, which if you want to spin conspiracy theories, this is how it can work. 23 of the American presidents, this is like half, have been Episcopalians. So if you're looking for the, the puppet masters, I think clearly it's the finger's going to point more to the Episcopalians than the Freemasons. Hmm. You see my point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can go and find, you know, individuals that are ambitious. See, here's the thing. You're an ambitious individual. You want to climb in business, you know, in, in social standing, whatever. So you go, okay, what can I, 
oh, I can become a Freemason. Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, I know so-and-so down at the bank. He's a Freemason. Uh, they raise a lot of money. And he's making a lot of money. Or I know so-and-so over, you know, whatever. So I think I'm going to become a Freemason, right? Now, you've got to be able to differentiate between an individual member of a group and the group itself. Mm. Now, Freemasonry right. is a body of, of, if it's any one thing, it's a, it's a body of knowledge, right? And, and so you have this structure that's formed around it to preserve this knowledge. Mm. And I think that the knowledge that's being preserved goes far above and beyond what we even assume people, you know, in former times and previous generations even knew. But bear in mind that, um, you know, for, for centuries there, you know, Freemasonry, that was, I mean, there were serious consequences. It had mm -hmm. to go, had to become secret. Now there's mm -hmm. the secret, you know, almost more like trade secrets, you know, we're not, if we have a if we have a special formula for a recipe a recipe for making mortar that that bonds harder than the rock itself that could be like a trade secret so you've got that level of secrecy but then when you're talking about meeting in secret which they did that was a matter of life and death and 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 as far as you know freemasonry being you know at the core of some kind of satanic takeover of the world how do you square that with the fact that every single time you get a dictator in power, what's the first thing they do? What's one of the first things Hitler did when he became power? Outlawed Freemasonry. What is one of the mm. first things that Stalin did when becoming, uh, uh, you know, taking control? Outlawed Freemasonry. What did what did Mao do? He outlawed Freemasonry. Why? Because Freemasons are free thinkers, you know, and and, and so this is incompatible with an, a totalitarian or authoritarian uh, society or a, or a dictatorship. And this is why what you always see, if you think that, that the Freemasons are in control and in charge of everything, then why is it then when these totalitarian regimes take over, they always outlaw Freemasonry? Well, one of the best ways to learn about just about anything is to talk to those people who have life experience in any field of inquiry or institution or brotherhood and and so that's why i thought it was maybe appropriate to to bring up this topic specifically although i know that wasn't what you'd intended to talk about i don't mind talking about it because i i get i get really annoyed at the disinformation out there about 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 people who are just their imaginations are out of control they're spinning all of these spurious connections and hopefully in the last 20 or 30 minutes that we've been talking about this i've been able to dispel some of that and um, because Freemasonry has been a tremendously made a tremendously positive contribution to our society. You know, when you yeah, absolutely. When you, you look at the money that these when these brothers get together and raise this money and what that money goes for, um, you know, you go again, I would say go visit a Scottish Rite hospital for crippled and burned children and tell me that that's Satanists running that. I'm not interested in making anyone feel bad. I know some people are listening to this that have a very different view than I do about the earth, for example, but I've got some friends that are flat earthers, a, a couple of friends that, and I, and I'm just drawing a parallel here. Um, and I, I tell them, okay, I'm happy to talk to you about this. I flew jets for the air force and I did space-based missile warning from geosynchronous orbit. And there's certain, there's a certain, uh, both understanding that comes with that as as well as there, there's a certain reality that exists that you have to leverage in order to do these missions properly 
and and it's like sharing a little bit of information about reality to or with a person that isn't necessarily interested in reality or truth per se but is more interested in holding on to some preconceived notion of reality that seems to fit their current paradigm of reality that, that it's like they don't want to necessarily listen to what you have to say about your experience uh, miles and miles above the earth or looking at the earth from from satellites it's like well you're just a big part of the conspiracy and they're if you buy into it they're just lying to you and they've got you by the you know what and i think well you know it's hard you, you can't necessarily certainly you're not going to convince people um that are adamant about a particular ideology or worldview but even persuading them gently with time is difficult as hell if they're just adamant that you're wrong and um, you're a part of the big lie. But I'll tell you, the flat earth, that's a big lie and it requires billions, trillions of dollars over many decades through the Cold War to now uh, with many, many, uh, uh, well, people in the national security space industry and the, um, and the space exploration industry and so on and so forth to, to perpetuate and prop up that lie. And that's a hard one for me to wrap my mind around. I've just tried recently watching some of these YouTube videos that flat earthers like to watch. And I just have to, you know, shake my head and think, my gosh, you're missing out on so much beauty in the reality of things about some of these relationships that exist in the stars and, and the, the cosmic ecosystem that you've mentioned uh, in previous episodes. I kind of got to the point where I just, you know, I can't, I, you know, even deal with it. I just, I don't pay attention to it anymore, you know, initially. And as a student of history, I absolutely believe that conspiracies are an integral part of history. You know, those who uh, covet power, those who have power, those who are trying to extend their power, whatever, they've been conspiring throughout history. That's a given. I mean, you can't look at any part of history and not see that there is conspiratorial stuff going on. The problem to me is that, you know, you muddy the waters with, in my opinion, the flat earth thing is just an absurd conspiracy. And what that does is it just muddies the water so much that when you look at what I think could be a real conspiracy, like, like, you know, not to get off on that, but let's just take the assassination of, 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 of Kennedy, right? Well, there, there are a lot of legitimate questions about that. And, and so the thing of it is, so if you ask those questions or any number of things that have, have uh, you know, transpired since then, it's almost like we're not allowed to even ask questions. If you ask questions, then you are a conspiracy theorist, right? And, you know, Kennedy assassination is then conflated with flat earth. Flat earth is a conspiracy theory because, like you said, you, you know, it characterizes what you're part of this cabal or whatever, right? So the thing is, is that you've got real conspiracies and then you've got a lot of silly, made up, ridiculous conspiracies that basically, once you lump it all together, what have you got? You've got this mishmash that makes no sense. And then the things that could be real conspiratorial phenomena in history get just lost in the noise. And I think that there's part of that might be, you know, a, a, a deliberate disinformation campaign. Put this stupid stuff out there and then, oh, you're a flat earther, you know, oh, you believe, like I've been, 
you know, because of the fact that I'm very critical of the global warming thing, which I could look at as a, a type of conspiracy because the way the data is manipulated and, uh, you know, I'd love to do a whole show or even a couple of shows on the whole climate change, global warming thing, because that's one of the areas that I've really immersed myself in for a long time and can talk about knowledgeably. We do spend maybe 20 or 30 minutes touching upon it in, ep in, in part two of the series. So if you've not yet listened to that or yeah. watched it, go back and listen to part two. But so, for example, um, you know, if you're a climate change denier, which is just a made up term because there are, who's a climate change denier? The critics of the global warming scenario are not denying the climate changes at all. In fact, my point is just the opposite. I'm the opposite of a climate change denier. I say, look, we should look at this, the history of climate on this planet. It's constantly changing. And sometimes it's changing catastrophically, way beyond anything we've seen in the last hundred years or since we've been tracking the weather in the last, you know, say, since the Industrial Revolution or even since the satellite era, right? So my point is that, okay, somebody, rather than addressing the, the facts that I bring, maybe about hurricanes, inclement weather, drought, uh, forest fires, the list could go on, you know, um, all of the kinds of things, hurricanes that are being attributed to global warming. Well, the fact is, is we've had plenty of hurricanes. You can look at the total cyclonic energy as it's been tracked. And in fact, if anything, it's decreased over the last couple of decades. Um, it, it, you know, in my writings, in my my presentations I've done, I put together. I've got two presentations on climate change that I have eight, over eight hundred slides. Right now, you go through that; it would take us hours and hours to go through all of that information. But at the end of it, you're going to go, "Well, wait a second. There's a lot of information out there." and data that contradicts this idea that we're in the midst of a climate crisis right now. Um, I'm looking out my window here in Georgia, and it's a beautiful day. Temperature is right at the average that it's been for the last half century. You know, the birds are singing. Um, it doesn't actually look to me like a global environmental catastrophe right now which we're going to come back and talk to about, uh, talk to uh, address in a few minutes when we come back to the, to the Younger Dryas type events, right? But my point is that I've been called, I don't know how many times, oh, he's a climate change denier. Well, no, because nowhere in anything I've ever said or written or presented have I denied the climate is changing. Uh, so where do you come up with that? Well, it, this is just this buzzword that you put up. It's like, you erect this shield that now, oh, he's a climate change denier. Therefore, I can pigeonhole his perspective on this. And I don't have to look at 30 years of data that he's collected, uh, you know, um, because I'm basically intellectually lazy. And I just want to, uh, uh, you know, I want to accept whatever I'm being spoon fed by mainstream media. So to me, global warming is a conspiracy because you've got people who are knowingly or unknowingly disseminating uh, information that is either wrong or by taken by being taken out of context. You know, if you look at a, a, a horrible, say, hurricane that's happened in the last 10 years, but you don't look at it within the last 100 years or 200 years, then you're taking it out of context.
What will you do if the grid goes down? How will you survive without food, water, and heat? Introducing One Sunrise, the first of its kind in massive on-demand power, instantly available at any residential, commercial, or remote location. Power your home, your office, your EV, your RV, your farm, your cabin, your bug-out bunker, your glamping weekend with the family, or all of them. Bring instant power to any situation, anywhere. Non-toxic, cobalt and lead-free, as well as fire-resistant, One Sunrise mobile power stations are made to run in over 100-degree temps or at negative 20. For when the grid goes down, there's One Sunrise. Visit onesunrise.com to learn how you can prepare today for no power tomorrow. Okay, this context piece. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play off of this real quickly because I do want to circle back. One, thank you for talking openly, well, as much as you could, openly and uh, addressing uh, the, the, the Freemason question. Circling back to previous episodes, and you've, you've mentioned the Younger Dryas just a second ago, we, I think, left off the last part of this series, at the end of part two, talking, uh, or you mentioned that you wanted to get in more into the uh, Leonid meteor stream. And I want to make sure I tee up here. We'll see where this goes. But also mention and, and inject this idea once again of this great year clock or some grander cycle that's roughly 26,000 years. I know that's not precise. And what exactly is that... Um, because you mentioned context matters. Well, there's a lot of things happening uh, at the end of the the Pleistocene and the transition to what we call the Holocene that appears in a context even of that great year clock. Uh, what is, what what is that clock? Does it have uh, time stamps on it? Uh, you know, and uh, you know, because there's people listening to this that can't necessarily even picture this. If they're watching, maybe they can get a better better picture here in a moment. But, um, you know. In what context did the Younger Dryas destruct, destructive period happen? In what context, uh, from, in that perspective, do we find ourselves now? And there's any number of models you can use to understand reality. Some are more useful than others. But this is a particular context that has been of interest to me. It's not the entire picture per se, but it's one of great importance in my view. And so I've, I've uh, mentioned in the previous episodes and I'd like to, to bring that up again here and ask that if we can somehow also transition into that context as we discuss uh, cosmic impactors and the Younger Dryas, that would be fantastic. So this is what, uh, in the book Hamlet's Mill, what they're calling uh, Amladi's Mill, which was a, uh, an ancient myth that was the inspiration behind the story of Hamlet. And let's not get into that too much today. Um, but let's see. So here, this shows uh, the motion of the Earth, uh, the th what, what we could call the th Earth's third motion. And this is the precession of the Earth's axis, which um, if you look at this diagram here, you'll see the arrows, it's spinning like this. And what that means is that the, we'll go to this next one. This will help to explain it. Okay, so the path of the celestial pole through one cycle of precession. Right now, here's the star Polaris, which is at the handle of Ursa Minor, the Big Dipper, right? I mean, the Little Dipper. And what's happening here is that right now, the vernal equinox, of course, this is this is old, an older, this is actually from the late 60s. So we've, we've had 50 years of precessional motion, but it's still basically pretty accurate. So this, we're my 
uh, cursor is right here. That's where the vernal equinox is. And I, I, I'm sorry, this is where uh, the north point is. So Polaris is the north star, and then this is the entire cycle right here. Um, so that, for those that are listening, we're looking, essentially, if you were looking up against yes. uh, the vault of the sky at uh, where the pole star is, it falls along the circumference of a circle uh, that is essentially, well, the the path, uh, that circle is described by the path of the North Celestial Pole yes. as it traces across the sky during that 26,000-year period, roughly. Yes, and I misspoke. I said vernal equinox, which is not what it is. Um, it's it's okay. the, the north. This is the actual north uh, pole or axis of the Earth right here. And it's moving. So it's actually moving closer. It's moving this way here. You can see mm. this. This is where the pole was pointing in 0 AD, 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see that how much closer um, the axis, the Earth's polar axis is now pointing to the star Polaris, which is kind of unique to our epoch. If we go backwards through the cycle, right back to here, to roughly uh, what we're calling the age of Leo, which would be 12 or 13,000 years ago, Vega was the pole star. Mm. Mm -hmm. Which isn't close as closely aligned with the North Celestial Pole as our Polaris it is. It is not, no. But it is certainly close enough that you could effectively use it for navigation. Because mm. it's, it's going to be a big, bright star. It's going to be in the northern sky at all times. It's just that the nightly loop that it makes is going to be a little bit bigger than Polaris. But if you went out and actually looked at Polaris, it's Polaris is not dead on geographic north. It's a little bit off. And so if you were to look at Polaris, you know, uh, all the stars that, that are, are making grand circles because of the Earth turning on its axis. And if you look at Polaris, it's making a circle very, very tightly close to the exact geographic north. But it's a little bit off. But it's certainly close enough that it can be effectively used for navigation. And it's close enough that all of those other stars about Polaris appear. You know, you see these uh, time-lapse photos over the course of a night, uh, and you can see all of those, these stars that are, that are circumambulating the pole star. They're all spinning about a center point or a nail that's fixed somewhere. Yes. So then this next graphic shows the two great cosmic planes, the celestial equator and the plane of the ecliptic. The celestial equator is just Earth's equator projected out into space to where it intersects the, the vault of the stars. The ecliptic is Earth's orbital plane, right? Now, if you look at here, here's showing, let's see, I guess this is the current epoch pointing towards Polaris. And this would be Vega over here. Then we go to this graphic. You've got the North Celestial Pole. And what's happening is because the Earth is not fixed in its axial orientation. It's tilted. First of all, you know that it's tilted 23 and a half degrees out of perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic or Earth's orbital plane. And it's that 23 and a half degree tilt that causes the change of the seasons, right? Because 
In the summer, the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun. In the winter, the northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. If the Earth's axis was perpendicular to its orbital plane, you would not have seasonal changes remotely like what we've got now. In fact, you would have sort of fixed climatic or environmental regimes that would be a function of its latitude or distance from the equator. The equator would be a very totally different place than it is now um, because there would be so much un, uh, uh, unmitigated solar energy that it would probably turn the whole equatorial uh, region into deserts. But so the, the, the change in season is because of this tilt of the Earth's axis. Well, the tilt of the Earth's axis is right now it's at about 23 and a half degrees. It varies a little bit on either side of that. But it takes right at 26,000 years to make one complete cycle around. Now, what that means is if we look at this diagram right here, it's this axis. You see the north, south. It's this axis that's moving. So if you can picture the Earth as a globe, as a sphere, and its axis is shifting, well, its equator is shifting at the same rate. So the celestial equator, which is the Earth's equator projected out into space against the backdrop of fixed stars, is also moving. The ecliptic plane is fixed. That's not moving. From year to year, millennia to millennia, over tens and hundreds of thousands of years, the Earth's orbit around the sun has, has varied to a very slight extent. But for practical purposes, that remains fixed from year to year, from century to century, even from millennium to millennia to millennia. What's not fixed is, is the Earth's orientation. Because the Earth's axis is not fixed, the Earth's equator is not fixed with uh, respect to its orientation to the sky. And since the Earth's equator is not fixed, the celestial equator, which is the projection of the terrestrial equator into space, is also not fixed. Now, because it's not fixed, you see this point right here of intersection? That point is moving. And it's moving around uh, that point of intersection between these two great cosmic planes is moving at essentially the same rate as the uh, processional motion of the Earth's axis. And it's this point here where those two planes cross, because now you picture um, the ecliptic, the ecliptic plane is defined, if you want to define it precisely, think of a line drawn from the center of the Earth to the center of the Sun. And there's a great cord that connects the two objects. The Sun, even though it's moving, we're not going to go there. We're just going to assume from, from this perspective, the human perspective, it's fixed. The Earth is moving around it. Think of this cord connecting the two. So as the Earth moves around, it's sweeping out this planar uh, formation, the, the, the plane of the ecliptic. That remains fixed. Celestial equator is moving. So the intersection line, we'll go to another graphic, I think, what will help to explain that. Okay, so here is the celestial equator, which is moving in this, in this one. The celestial sphere with the 12 signs of the zodiac, they're unique and, and special because the 12 signs of the zodiac are the 12 constellations that are arrayed around the plane of the ecliptic. So 
during the course of one circuit of the Earth around the sun, the sun will appear to be going about once every month through one of the 12 signs of the zodiac, right? So the thing of it is, though, if you look at this, this is a slightly different perspective than the previous one. If you look at this, the north, remember, is changing. So this intersection point where it says zero degrees Aries, that's the vernal equinox. That is changing. That's moving. So it's been, you look at here, here's, uh, uh, here's the zero degrees Aries. And actually, um, this is Pisces and this is, let's see. So here's Aquarius. So really, this is like from an epoch a couple of thousand years ago. Here's Gemini, Taurus, um, Aries, Pisces, and Aquarius. Let's go to the next one here. Let's see. So if you like... That's me. That's you? That's me sitting up yeah, there. Yeah, I, I see the... Yeah, I recognize it. Now, it looked familiar, <laughs> but I didn't quite place it. So what we're done here, let me back up a couple. I'm going to this right here, linking time and space through the quartered circle. So, you know, okay. this quartered circle was a sacred emblem to many, many ancient cultures. Um you know, the Native Americans very much laid out their sacred precincts according to this qua uh, the, the uh, quartered circle. Uh, we go back to here, and this is, you know, the Inca version of the same thing. Um, and this is, you could think of this as representative of the four ages of the world. It could be the four seasons, because many cultures divided the year into four seasons, right? Just like we divide the clock into four periods, and there are four signatory points within the cycle of the day, which is marked by dawn, which is usually associated with 6 a.m., high noon, dusk, and midnight. And so those kind of correlate with the, um, the four fixed signs of the zodiac, the two solstices and the two equinoxes, right? So there were many ways of... Uh, envisioning this, the Popol Vuh, which was the sacred book of the Quiche Maya, which still exists, um, and it's got similar doctrines to what we find in Egypt and other parts of the world. Um, they imagined that the vault of heaven was supported by four pillars. And of course, these four pillars are now associated with these four points, the two solstitial points and the two equinoctial points. Now, here's the, here's the, the, the insight you need to take away from this. They form a great, if you were to connect the two solstices with a solstitial line, the two equinoxes with an equinoctial line, those two lines are at right angles to each other. And that's nature giving this quartered circle, right? So in this particular um, graphic here, what we're saying, okay, there, so there's a representation of the Navajo universe, and here's their concept of the four pillars. And these four pillars extend down and form the four stations in this great circle that represent the solstices and the equinoxes. And then overhead, you see the vault of the heavens. Now, in Freemasonry, the arch of the, this is called the Royal Arch, um, because, all, you know, Freemasonry is a, a, a compendium of geometry and astronomy and music and other things that are part of the seven liberal arts and sciences. And so, you know, Freemasons are told, if you want to understand 
the, the mysteries of the craft, you have to understand geometry, number one, then astronomy, and then music. Um, so let's go back to this graphic that we were looking at here. If you take that quartered circle and just lay it onto the ground, and now it's extending out to the horizon, and you sit in this chair for one year watching what the heavens do, here's what you're going to see. Summer solstice, the sun is much higher than the winter solstice. And you can see that the summer solstice sun, so this, notice here, this, this line is facing south. This is facing north. If you're facing south, then east is on your west. So here's the rising position of the sun throughout the course of the year. So summer solstice, it's rising to the north of the east-west line. On equinox, it's rising and setting due east and west. And then on winter solstice, it's far to the south. Now you can see here that because of that angular tilt, which is totally the result of the Earth's axial tilt, again, look here, north, north celestial pole right here, right? The sun's trajectory above the horizon. And you can see during summer solstice, how much more time the sun is spending above the horizon than at winter solstice, and hence... So the further north you go in latitude, let's say you go up, we've got a, a ground-based missile warning unit in Thule, Greenland, and I've been near the winter solstice, and uh, the sun had set sometime a month earlier, and it hadn't uh, seen the light of day for, I think it was going to be until February or March it was going to come up again, but in the summer months, at the summer solstice uh, period that you're talking about, the the sun doesn't exactly even make that motion that you see on the screen. It's almost like it rises a little bit and circles around the horizon uh, and, and creates a tremendous amount of daylight for most of the 24-hour period, if not the entire 24-hour period. And again, that's entirely due to the tilt of the Earth's axis. And summer solstice, you know, the, the North Pole is tilted over, pointing to the sun. At the sun, yeah. or toward the sun. the sun. Yeah. yeah. Here you've got... Look, here's the plane of the ecliptic, the orbital plane, right? And, and you'll notice... And so all of those zodiacal signs show up on the plane of the ecliptic. Yes. All 12 of those All 12 signs. of those, which, which is what makes those signs unique. So this belt of the zodiac extends about 8 degrees above the plane of the ecliptic and 8, eight degrees below. So it encompasses, encompasses these 12 signs. Now, what you have to look at here is your, here's your solstitial line. Here's your equinoctial line. Now, again, look, the green circle is the celestial equator. And that celestial equator is moving. And one of my goals in the very near future, and I'm talking to you know, Russ, uh, uh, Russ Allen, who uh, co-hosts the Cosmographia podcast, we've been talking about how and who we could get involved to, to actually do a really effective animation to show the processional motion of the Earth's axis and how this these these uh, changes are occurring. But um, so what's... Yeah, it almost takes a dynamic model to really appreciate what's... Yes, it does. And a lot of time spent with it. Uh, this is unnatural. Again, I mentioned this, I think, maybe in the second episode with you. Our Space Force personnel who are listening to this, one of the greatest challenges that they have is simply orienting themselves to how space actually operates and how Earth get how, how do you get your bearings on the cosmos around you? And I like this depiction here because 
you see the earth sitting in the midst of a perfectly divided circle um, as if to establish the four corners of the earth uh, with these lines that uh, fix you in some place at any given moment somewhere in the cosmos relative to uh, this grand wheel. Yes, the grand wheel. And see, even I've got this quote from first chapter of Ezekiel up here. And their work was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel, and which to me is really an apt description of celestial mechanics and how it works. But here's what I want. This is not a static image. This is actually a dynamic image. And this great, if you want to think of it as a celestial cross formed by the solstitial line here, the equinoctial line here, that's rotating. So that 26,000 years, this these four points are going to rotate completely around the plane of the ecliptic. So if you were to go out right now on the morning of spring equinox and watch what stars were on the eastern horizon just before sunrise, and you were to start watching that and you were to start uh, monitoring that motion every year, for generation after generation, you would soon see that the vault of heaven is shifting and that the stars, the backdrop of stars, let's say, that are on the horizon at the moment of spring equinox is slowly shifting. And in fact, you know, modern estimates are that that rate is 50 seconds of arc per year. Now, 50 seconds of arc per year, if you want to add that up, it works out to be about one degree every 72 years. Right, because there's uh, if you look at, at a degree, a degree is 60 minutes and each minute is 60 seconds. So, uh, in a degree, you've got 60 minutes of arc, every degree divided into 60 minutes of arc, and every minute of arc divided into 60 seconds. So, you've got 3,600 seconds of arc per degree, and then if you go times you know. 20, uh, the 72, you'll get the number of arc seconds. But think about the, I, I don't want to get too mathematical here without being able to show uh, the actual numbers. But if you think about it this way, 50 seconds of arc per year, that will add up. And it'll take 72 years for that to go one degree against the night sky. And how many degrees of night sky is, roughly speaking, I know they're not all exactly the same, although they're e evenly divided up in your depiction here, but like the sign or star constellation of Pisces, and now we're transitioning to Aquarius, the age of Aquarius that they sang about. And so how, how big of a swath of the sky are we talking about, and how long does it take then to, to traverse, for the equinox to traverse? There's two uh, ways you have to look at this. One is the signs. The signs are idealized one twelfth subdivisions of the uh, of the equinoctial. I mean, of the ecliptic plane, right? The, so, in other words, what you what you do is zero degrees Aries is going to be this right here, uh, right here, vernal point sun at the spring equinox. That is moving. It's moving. And what that means is, is that, like I was saying, 50 seconds of arc per year. You watch that accumulate. And what happens is that you've got the plane of the ecliptic divided into 12 idealized subunits that are 
equidistant in, in time or length, which is uh, right at 2,160 years, right? Which means, so we're talking 30 degrees of that 360 exactly. degrees as being, as being precessed. Yes. Well, the, the point of equinox is precessing through those signs. Yes. Each of those signs being 30, you know, divided up into 30 degree, signs, degree segments. Yes. And the signs are idealized 30 degree sections of the plane of the ecliptic, and there's 12 of them. The signs, and this is where it gets confusing to people, the signs have the names bear the names of the constellations that were centered in those signs like roughly 2,500 years ago. So you have the constellation of Pisces and you have the sign of Pisces. They're different. The signs are rotating. Like think of it, it's a big wheel that's rotating every 26,000 years. The signs, the, the constellations remain fixed. So what will happen is in, say, 26,000 years minus 2,000 years from now, say between 23 and 24,000 years from now, the signs and the constellations that have the same names will line up once again. But they don't because of that processional movement. Now, to try to get a, a handle on it from the human perspective, you go out and look at the full moon. The full moon disk is about a half a degree of arc in the sky. So if you could think of two full moons just touching, tangent to each other, that's about a degree. And that's about how far the vernal equinox is going to be seen to move in 72 years, about roughly about one human lifespan. So that's um, one 360th of the entire circle uh, around the ecliptic of the 12 signs of the, the zodiac. So now the signs are hinged to the vernal equinox. So as the vernal equinox is moving, the 12 signs are moving with them. Whereas the For those that are uh, unfamiliar with that language too, I'll just interject to say we're talking springtime every yes. year. We're talking March 21st, 22nd. Yes. That's the spring equinox or the vernal equinox that these signs are hinged upon. That then, because it's at that point in that the sun is rising in a particular constellation every time of, at yes. that point every year, right? Yes. Am I misspeaking? Yes. And so, what's happening now, if you go out and you are actually able to look at the, and anybody can now do this with astronomy programs. I've got, I use Stellarium. I did use Voyager, but they got discontinued that. I now use Stellarium. If you get a, an astronomy program, that's the best way I recommend. I, I recommend two things. I recommend one year of observation of the night sky, getting out maybe once a week or a couple of times a month, starting with the motion of the moon, right? Because the moon makes a full circuit in, in a month. So you can see the moon moving through the backdrop of stars. And if you get a um, an astronomy program or, uh, you know, an ephemeris, let's say it was the old way you did it, which was just a book that showed you uh, where the planets and the sun and the, and the moon were at any on any given date. You get an ephemeris or you get an a, a astronomy program, which, you know, which will come with a guidebook or some instructional videos. That's the best way to really learn this, um, coupled yeah. with actual observations of the night sky. Um, so 
Yes, what's happening then is the vernal equinox is moving slowly through, moving slowly against the backdrop of the constellations. So for the last roughly 2,000 years, the vernal equinox has been moving against the backdrop of the star sign, the constellation Pisces. Prior to that, it was moving through Aquarius, uh, uh, sorry, Aries. And prior to that, it was moving through Taurus. Now, the thing of it is, if you look at the constellation of Aries, it's much smaller than the constellation of Pisces in terms of how far it's spread across the sky. So clearly, the vernal equinox is going to transit through Aries in a much shorter time span than it is the more spread out constellation of Pisces. So, but that again is a function of the fact that you're looking at star groupings, which, if you if you know the work of Dave Matheson, did you meet Dave Matheson? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never met him, but I've read some of his yeah, work. Yeah, excellent stuff. So he goes. I mean, he really makes a strong case that you know the the present configuration of the of the constellations and things that we use actually have roots in very ancient history, but. Mm -hmm. Again, you got to differentiate between the signs, which are idealized 130th, 30 degrees mm. sections of the plane of the ecliptic, and then the constellations that occupied those signs, you know, roughly two and a half millennia ago. Um, so let me ask you this, Randall, because I'm trying to be sensitive to the idea that, um, you know, many people that are listening to this show will have, and I know because I came out of a, cult, a religious cultural makeup that seemed to steer me away from, unfortunately, if you can believe it, but many people listening will appreciate this, a study of even the stars, heaven forbid, you get it, because that's the, the realm of astrology. And if you're getting into astrology, you're dabbling in stuff that's wicked and not of God, or it's not Christian, or however people want to characterize it. But I've since extracting myself uh, from a, a certain cultural uh, malaise that, that, that seemed to keep me from studying and opening my eyes and studying some of these things, I've since come to appreciate just how beautiful some of this can be. And in fact, again, as we've said in previous episodes, all of this should, if you have a proper view of your, maybe your religious tradition, if you're religious, should somehow fit very well or neatly into whatever your paradigm is. And if not, then maybe you ought to reinvestigate some aspect of your, of your worldview. But talk to, so with that said, help the listener or the viewer appreciate, um, I don't know if I want to say a distinction between, but maybe address the concern that, well, I don't pay attention to this stuff. That's just astrology. You get talking about the signs of the zodiac and you lose me because that's, uh, that doesn't play an important role uh, for me. That's all astrology. What's the difference between ancient astronomy and astrology? Should we conflate them? And maybe, again, the, the answer is it depends and context matters. Well, for that, I'll quote Psalms 19, chapter 19, verse 1. And this is my perspective on this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where the voice of God is not heard. 
that's my take is when I look at the stars at night, it just proclaims the glory of the creator's handiwork. I, I, I ter- take it exactly the opposite. Yeah. Well, I do too now for the record. And this is, this is the point, And this is why I want to ask, it's a leading question, but I think, listen, if you're someone who's a part of a, a social or cultural tradition, be it religious or otherwise, that somehow makes you think that this is not meaningful or useful to you, maybe you ought to reinvestigate that because uh, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about on my show in the months ahead, um, I won't say hinges upon this, but this is a necessary aspect to uh, a worldview that I think is meaningful, useful, and maybe even helps the um, student appreciate some of actually what's going on in the world. And, and I'm trying to get at this because we're talking cosmic impactors, we're talking the history of this planet, and you talked about the Younger Dryas, and when people think, oh, 11 and 12,000 years ago or 10,000 BC, uh, one of the things they usually don't think about is the picture you've got on the screen and trying to place that in, in some grander astronomical context. Um, where they think, oh, what age of the world did that occur in, and why does it even matter, or does it? And maybe it doesn't. Well, let's let me go to a quote from a famous work published in 1969, a work of tremendous scholarship called Hamlet's Mill. Hamlet's Mill. I had that quote from Amladi earlier. Um, Hamlet's Mill, uh, Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha von Deschend, uh, in 1969, uh, published this uh, milestone work called Hamlet's Mill, an investigation, subtitled, an investigate, an essay, an essay investigating the origins of human knowledge and its transmission through myth. And one of the central themes of this book is this great year concept, right? This is where I really probably first encountered the concept uh, in my first effort to get through this book, which, you know, was published in 69. I probably first attempted to read it maybe mid-70s, early to mid-70s. Anyways. It's a difficult read. If you've never looked at some of this these concepts, it's a difficult read. It's a difficult read. read. Yeah, it, it is. But it's, you know, for me it was like, wow, well, this is a challenge, and I love to challenge. You know, not like, oh, this is too complicated. I have to look up too many words in the dictionary. Although, always when I read, I had a dictionary next to me. That was standard operating procedure for me. If I encountered a word I didn't know, I went right to the dictionary and I would add, I would have a notebook and I'd add it to my vocabulary, you know. Um, so anyways, here's a quote from Hamlet's Mill and they're talking about the equinoctial points, all right? Here we have the equinoctial points and therefore the solstitial ones too do not remain forever where they should in order to make celestial goings-on easier to understand, namely, at the same spot with respect to the sphere of fixed stars. Instead, they stubbornly move along the ecliptic in the opposite direction, hence precession, to the yearly course of the sun, that is, against the right sequence of the zodiacal signs. This phenomena is called precession of the equinoxes. And here's where it gets, here's where the concepts 
major concepts come together because what they're doing here in this quote is they're drawing from this universal tradition that they found embedded over and over again in in ancient models of the universe of the world and how it works. So I'll go back in. This phenomena, phenomenon is called precession of the equinoxes, and it was conceived as causing the rise and the cataclysmic fall of the ages of the world. There it is in a nutshell. Well, that's, imp that's an important takeaway uh, that I'm hoping to get at in this episode and why I wanted to go down this lane. Uh, I think that there's something to that, whether or not a listener or a viewer wants to think that there's something to that. Let me read one more uh, quote since you brought up the Psalms. Uh, I also th happen to think of the very first chapter of Genesis, um, verse 14. We're talking about a creation uh, epoch or various periods of time in which things were done or said. And in the 14th verse, at least in the King James that I'm reading from here, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and, and for years. And there's this idea there that there's a purpose for their establishment by some grand architect, someone who actually appreciates geometry and likes to leave their fingerprints places uh, all throughout nature and in the cosmos. That's my view anyhow. And I've happily been able to sync up much of what you're talking about with my own worldview. And in some cases, I've had to reinvestigate why I believe certain things and maybe even disband certain things I had come to believe in. So, because there's certain reality that you need to come to confront and the search should always be for laying a greater foundation of truth that you can build upon because there's some aspect of the foundation that you've laid for yourself that isn't quite quite right or it starts to crumble under the pressure of truth or reality then maybe it's time to start to fix up your foundation a little bit so that you can erect a more lasting structure that's so that's that's why I'm I think it's really critical that we're getting into some of these topics and for me I don't I don't see a contradiction between religion and science, or if you want to, spirituality and science at all. I don't see that because my knowledge of science and, and, and the world when I get dive into astronomy or, um, you know, even biology or any number of phys, even physics, you know, what, what it seems to me is that the more I learn, the more it seems like there's this grand order to things. You know, and, and I just I have a very difficult time reconciling the idea that all of creation is just the consequence of some kind of random interaction of matter and energy. There's something else going on here. You know, now I don't know what to, you know, maybe this is what I would call God. But I've had experiences in my life, which we can talk about in a future podcast that have led me. I like that you keep mentioning future podcasts. It's making oh, me happy. Well, I mean, there, there, there's so much we can talk about, but, you know, I've had yeah, right. personal experiences, which, you know, you might call, um, you know, a mystical experience or a sense of at oneness, or I, you know, I hate to even use words because words don't really describe some of these experiences that I've had a couple of in my life that have convinced me that there's far more to existence than meets the eye. And you know, it, for me, it is. It's a it's a great it's a miracle and a mystery at the same time. And 
I'm constantly in a state of wonder and awe at this whole creation that we're a part of, right? So, I, you know, it's interesting because I came up in a very agnostic type of a household. I don't ever remember my father going to church once. He never talked about religion, anything. My mother, you know, my, my mother's parents were, were Southern Baptists, so they were very strict and very fundamentalist. I lived with them for a year and got hauled off to church twice a week, um, stuffed into my suit, you know, when I was nine years old and hauled off to church. And uh, I didn't well, I didn't like it. Um, but, you know, now my perspective is, is that I kind of came up free of the dogmas that, like, for example, you were brought up in a religious household is what I'm in, in, taking. Right. You were brought up in a at some point it became it religious. Became yeah, it became okay. religious. Yeah. Well, see, I had a Catholic father and a Mormon. Oh, I had an inactive Catholic father and an inactive Mormon I mother. See. But we then that started a kind of journey that maybe I'll talk about some other episode. Oh, okay. Well, my 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 can, my first association or exposure to religion was my mother would when we were little she would read us Bible. So I still, in fact, have the same book that we had in our family as a little kid with nice color plates. And I loved Bible stories. I loved Bible stories. In the same way, I loved Greek mythology and Norse mythology. Um, you know, and so I really, I, I ate up all the Bible stories. Um, but we were never really inculcated into any particular religious dogma. For me, it was like I was totally not religious, 17 years old, and then I did certain things that did this, blew my mind, and... I basically, you know, I was, it was an experience. I've talked about it several times um, on a camping trip, southwestern Minnesota. And I had a experience that's still with me to this day um, where it was as if all, all I could say, and, and again, I even hate to try to describe it because the words are so completely, um, you know, inept at, at conveying what it was, but it was as if the heavens opened before me and I had this direct experience and awareness of the glories of God living through the creation. And that totally put me on a path that I'm still on, basically. You know, um, just, I don't even know how to describe it really, um, other than that the whole of creation seemed like just the, the quote from that I just read from Psalms sort of sums that up. That's why when I remember the first time I ever read that quote, I thought that reminds me of that day in summer of 1969. I know it was right around the time of the um, right around the time of the moon landing, as a matter of fact, uh, which was in July. And I'm thinking this was probably in June. I had just gotten out of high school and I was, uh, down at uh, Pipestone, Minnesota, which was sacred to the Plains Indian tribes. It's where they quarried the red claystone for their peace pipes. And uh, it's a very unique place. And um, yeah, sometime I'll kind of go into that. Um, but yeah, that set me off on a pathway that I'm still on. It led me to, you know, reading the Bible, but I also read the Bhagavad Gita, the Bundahish, the Tao Te Ching, and it seemed like, you know, all of these, it was like, well, wait a second, they're all kind of basically looking at the same thing, but from different 
perspectives, different philosophical, different cultural uh, perspectives. But, you know, when I read the, the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata, you know, I mean, I'm constantly going, oh, you know, the Bible, the Mahabharata. Why would God limit his revelation to just one people at one time? That's what I begin to question. And I'm thinking, it seems to me that these dogmas want to put constrictions upon the work of God and say, only this, only then. Whereas I begin to think, well, wait a second. I, to me, God is like always present. And when there's a people who are receptive to the presence of the divine, God will reveal. And I use himself just, you know, um, because I put, in my mind, God is beyond those kinds of dichotomies. Um, anyways, yeah, so I, I, I became religious growing up in a completely non-religious household. I became, well, I would say became spiritual. Spiritual, spiritual maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people today from my sense of things. It's the year 2022. Uh there might have been a generation that was raised in a religious household, but they've lost interest in religion. But they, there's something innate about human nature that seeks, one, beliefs and belief systems, underlying basic assumptions about reality that, that shape your worldview, but also, in many instances, spirituality, despite the failure of religious institutions. And so that's also why I think some of this information is important to discuss, because the grander glorious reality that we're confronted with all about us is worth contemplation, whether or not we're um, still excited about whatever particular religious institution or uh, culture that we hail from. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, this, this episode has taken such a unique turn. I want to call this an episode and wrap this up, but here's what I want to do in the future. I think we've been going for a little over an hour and a half. Um, I, I want to circle back then to Younger Dryas, Cosmic Impactors, uh, this space environment, since now that you've brought up uh, kind of the, the great year cycle. But then I want to transition that into um, the Randall Carlson Project. I think it's now called the Sanctuary Project and what it is about education that you're so interested in uh, accomplishing or transforming or, or fixing. Uh, and so is it, would it be all right if we mm -hmm. uh, take an opportunity mm -hmm. to specifically plug that in a separate episode? Um, and then maybe we can cap off that Leonid meteor stream, um, topic and cosmic impactors in that episode as well. And that, that'll be the focus of our concluding, uh, episode sure. maybe. And then many more in the yeah, future. I'm if, totally if willing to, um, great, great, uh, conversations we're having and you are really an excellent, uh, um, communicator, I think in a, um, What's the word I'm looking for? It must be past my nap time. Um, <laughs> you need to drink more caffeine. I drank a half a cup. I can't drink too much oh. coffee these days. I don't know. I, but uh, yeah, the 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 idea is, you know, I I'm very much about learning, and one of the great joys of my life has been teaching. I discovered in the '80s I love to teach. Just this, mm. you know, so. I first started when I was doing these, after I had about a decade of these studies under my belt, uh, people would ask me, like, well, what's the deal with, you know, the, the procession of the equinoxes? So I would try to explain and I would 
draw sketches and this and that. Um, so early 80s, I started doing presentations and I discovered sacred geometry, as it's called, which is now mm. kind of gotten to be a lot of connotations to the term. Um, it's got, you know, kind of a woo factor that's sort of in, interceded in it. But when I first discovered, I think it was 1973 when I first discovered the, the terminology. And it was about the time that I was starting to get into building. And uh, I discovered that I really, the importance of geometry when you're building things, um, if you mm -hmm. want to get good at it, you want to design things and build things and know how to, you know, create three-dimensional forms in space, you've got to have some geometric knowledge. So I started getting into that and discovered I really enjoyed geometry. Um, and I think it goes back to even uh, as a child, you know, my dad, my grandpa used to make toys. They were both carpenters, right? house builder carpenters. So, you know, I grew up around construction and building and all of this. And my dad and my grandfather used to make wooden toys that were basically building blocks. Like my dad would make these, um, these intricate uh, wooden blocks that were mortised, um, were rabbited. You could fit them all together in different ways and create buildings and houses. And, and um, I think that that was one of the things that, that led to an interest in, geometry but we built uh two fuller domes me and my brothers built uh two geodesic domes buckminster fuller domes in 19 summer of 1972 so i had to learn about geodesic geometry and then uh the one of the domes that we built uh ended up being featured in a national publication called shelter uh, i don't think i have it handy but next time we get together i'll pull it out was a very interesting book, but um, it went into all kinds of vernacular architecture and different building traditions throughout the ages and different cultures and how they approached solving the, the challenges and problems of the built environment. One of the things that had, had a section in there about cathedrals, which I found very interesting, it also had a section in there about Islamic mosques and how the same geometry that was incorporated into the mosques was the geometry that was used to lay out these incredible mosaic tile patterns, but also the rug weavers uh, who would weave these elaborate, um, like, you know, uh, Persian rugs and things that were all symbolical. So it was like, yeah, it's a beautiful geometric pattern, but if somebody knows how to decipher the geometry, it's actually, uh, it's actually almost like a textbook, a carpet, a rug. That is like a textbook. And it was the same thing that was going on in the Gothic cathedrals. Well, and then it was talking about, you know, these different traditions around the world and how there was these similarities and parallels between these traditions. So that led me into this really in-depth study of, of geometry. It was the first place I learned about the so-called golden section or divine proportion was in that book, Shelter, 1973. And I was so intrigued by that that I began to try to dig up everything I possibly could on that subject and how it was incorporated into building and architecture and art and design and all of that. So by the early 80s, I'd spent 10 years and there wasn't a whole lot available then compared to what you've got now. I had to go searching for rare books and, and 
several books that I saved up money to, you know, expensive books. But by the 1980s, um, you know, and I'm building uh, things, so I'm having a lot of interaction with architects and designers and things, and we'd get into some discussions. And then, well, you know, I, I know about the golden section, but what is it exactly? So I'd go, well, let's get one of these one of these compasses here, these drawing compasses, and I'll show you. And I would draw it out. So also in the mid-70s, I also took a series of engineering courses. And one of them was engineering graphics and design. So that's where I learned really how to use a, a compass and a straight edge to set out, you know, all these elaborate geometric diagrams that could then be used, um, you know, to in engineering and design and architecture and so on. So anyways, to make a long story short, by the 1980s, I kind of just fell into teaching. So I organized a class, and I think it was 81 or 82 that I did the first class, and it was attended by 15 or 20 people. Um, and I basically would, we would do online, we would do, not online, we would do hands-on drawing exercises, and then we would fill it in with, you know, philosophy and some symbolism and all of that. And then over the next 10 to 15 years, that teaching evolved into a whole program. And I was, I found myself by the 90s sometimes doing, you know, I, let's see, I did uh, five uh, lectures at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. I did, I think it was at Duke University where I did a lecture with like 500 people in the audit, auditorium. I went out and did a series of lectures in Colorado. Um, I found the work of Keith Critchlow, who was a British architect, um, did workshops and seminars with him over a period of years. So I started getting quite knowledgeable knowledgeable about it. And then, and I'd been doing programs for adults. Well, then about 94, 95, right in there, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Brad, uh, he was teaching in the Waldorf system of education. And here in Atlanta, Waldorf went from, I guess, like kindergarten age up to eighth grade. One of the unique things about Waldorf was they would have the same teacher that would carry a class from kindergarten up to middle school. And so I remember learning about that and thinking, well, wow, that's, you know, and then you've got a smaller size class. Well, you have the same teacher year after year. The teacher really gets to know the kids intimately. Mm -hmm. It's like, like a, parent. a parent. Yes, knows what their what their aptitudes are, what their strengths, what their weaknesses, all of that are, and and can then begin to tailor their lessons to the real children that the students they have, as opposed to what's going on in most education, certainly in ninety percent of the the de facto monopolistic education, which is public education. You'll have thirty kids in a class. You've got to get through this material. So regardless of the fact that that may not be the optimum pace for one semester for all three, maybe five students in the whole group, that that's the optimum pace. For the rest, it's too slow. They get bored. They, 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 they're not paying attention. The others, it's too fast. You know, maybe particularly when it comes to things like math and geometry. So anyways, my friend Brad, he says, well, I'm working with the Waldorf school, what, what they did was once they got to eighth grade, there was at that time, there is now a Waldorf high school here near, near where I live. 
back then there was not a Waldorf High School. So once they got to eighth grade, they were on their own. Do you go into public school? Do you go to private school? Do you hire tutors? What do you do? So a group of Waldorf parents in Atlanta got together, formed this organization, um, uh, something like Waldorf Outreach, forget the exact name of it. But so then they hired this Brad to be a main lesson teacher. They rented two classrooms in a local church that were not being used. So one of them was just an empty room and one of them Brad had turned into a classroom. So he asked me, it's, it was March, I think of 1995. He said, would you consider coming in? He says, we're ready to, in, in our curriculum now, it's time for us to do a geometry unit. Would you come in and do some geometry with the kids and, but throw, put some sacred geometry in there? Yeah. And I thought, okay, yeah, I've got, I've got some extra time. I'll do that. Um, so I would, I went over there and I ended up doing two, two weeks. He asked me if I would do a two week program. So I put together a two week program, went in there. There was, I think six kids in the, in the group. And, uh, we did the we did the two weeks, and what I did was I had them all drawing. I sort of like combined geometry with art. I said, "Look, this we're going to get into the proofs and the axioms and the propositions, but we're going to make it a lot more fun than that. We're going to I'm going to actually have you drawing and coloring these forms and these shapes while we talk about it and we learn their properties." We did the two weeks. The two weeks was up, so I went about my way, and I don't remember not long. Maybe it was just a matter of a few days. Mm -hmm. Brad calls me and he says, well, the kids were wondering, can you do another two weeks? <laughs> we want Randall yes. back. That's what it was. So, sure. So I went back and I did a couple more weeks, finished up that, repeat. Same thing. Mm -hmm. So I ended up. Excellent. I think that the, the year end went up to Memorial Day or something. I ended up finishing up the year, Right. And so now the kids are on break. It's summer vacation. And over summer vacation, I start getting phone calls from parents. Well, we talked to so-and-so and she said that, um, you know, Kathy or whatever hated math, but she discovered she really likes math now. And I want to talk to you about, could you come and tutor our son, Johnny, about this? Said, well, well, by the end of the summer, I had a bunch of phone calls. So and including the group, the original group that um, I would teach, they wanted to come back and continue on. Now, up to this point, I had recently taken five semesters of math. I went back to college, took five semesters of math just because I like math. And I thought, I'm going to do this. So I went back, took five semesters of math. So I had gone through, you know, from geometry through algebra, advanced algebra, trigonometry, pre-calc, um, you know, had gone through all of that. So I ended up putting together a curriculum. I had some students that I had for three years, um, students that had basically almost zero math come in and start, start with geometry. Then what I would do is I would gently introduce uh, the, you know, uh, variables to represent. Okay, we've just drawn a triangle. We're going to name this triangle ABC for the sides. Uh, and we'll name the corners too. And and so from there now we're working with these imagery and we're giving names to the, the, the various parts of these images. 
And then it went from there to now, let's develop an equation out of that. So we segued from geometry into algebra. Then once we had spent, you know, got some time to give, become proficient in algebra, I introduced them to analytic uh, uh, trigonometry and analytic geometry, which is where you now start graphing. You know, I'm sure you've had analytic geometry, and you know this is where you use the Cartesian coordinate system, or, or conversely, a polar coordinate system, and you basically learn how to translate pictures on the on the coordinate system into equations and back again. So I would make it like it was like a game, like a puzzle that we're trying to figure out. And, and I you know, would get the kids to work at their own pace. And then when the kids, some of them were getting it a little faster than others, I would get them to help the slower ones. So we would all be seated around a table and we'd be doing these exercises. One, one of them would be helping the one next to them. And um, I had quite a few successes out of that. Uh, kids going on to become professional engineers, scientists. Um, I've got a lot of letters in my files from kids uh, that, you know, 95, they've grown up now, right? I, uh, from parents, um, those kinds of things who um, basically, so, so over, I did this for 15 years. And over these 15 years, and I'm basically just glossing over the thing. I'm just hitting the high point. I begin to develop ideas about how kids learn, my own experience in learning in, in school. And, you know, I was always naturally curious, but I would go to school, particularly middle school, for me, was just a nightmare. Um, I did pretty good in grade school. Um, with, with one exception, my fourth grade teacher was a B-I-T-C-H. Um, but other than her, I had a pretty good experience, you know, in grade school. I got into middle school and it just turned into a chaos, right? So I didn't do so good in middle school. And I look back, why didn't I do good? And there was a lot of reasons why. And I think it was just the whole structural system when you're thrown into this. And, you know, teachers don't really know you. There's it's. We could get into this a lot, but basically what I came to believe, and I've looked back at traditional modes of learning, you know, up until, um, you know, really like World War II, between World War I and World War II is when it shifted from small, locally controlled schools to these gigantic factories, you know, post-World War II, particularly in the 50s, the federal government wanted to get more control over the educational process, the curriculums and all this. So what they did was they, um, they used the, uh, the carrot of highway funds. You know, this is when they started building the, uh, the, inter the uh, interstate highway system in the 50s. They used that to uh, pressure states into consolidating school districts. So states that had hundreds or even thousands of small locally controlled school districts, they started consolidating these school districts into these behemoths where you could have centralized control. And that... Trust us, the federal government will be running it. It will all be much yes. better. And, and so what we can see, it wasn't that bad at first, but 
Right. Well, then there's the ongoing politicization yeah. of that school system and um, less learning, more creating of uh, ideologues. Yes. And, and, and um, dumbing yeah, down, like in the, in the, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of John Taylor Gatto. Gatto. He's done, he's, he not. was like twice named New York uh, State uh, Teacher of the Year. Very well known. Well, he, he dropped out of the system and said this system is... It's beyond redemption. He wrote a book called Dumbing Us Down. Let's see if I look up John Taylor Gatto. He's the one I would recommend to anybody who, um, you know, has begun to question uh, the uh, way that kids are being educated. John Taylor Gatto, yes, he wrote The yeah, Underground History of American Education, Weapons of Mass Instruction. That's a good one. Yeah. He was an American author okay. and school teacher. After teaching for nearly 30 years, he authored uh, several books on modern education, criticizing its ideology, history, and consequences. Hmm. He's the guy, yeah, yeah. Nine, 1991, his book was Dumbing Us Down. So I okay. became familiar with Good. his work, and it really provided a perspective. And the more I thought about it, the more I began to realize that this modern education system is basically destroying the aptitude for learning. I was going to say you'll appreciate uh, this small vignette, but I've got a six-year-old daughter. She's my oldest, and uh, we're homeschooling her. And um, she's artsy. She's uh, had a proclivity for art for the past several years that she's exhibited and for music. And I happen to like geometry. And uh, as boring as it has uh, or it might appear to some, I'm working through Euclid's... Um, elements right now with a compass and straight edge in hand because there's no royal highway to learning geometry i hear and so i'm working through the problems but i the point of bringing this up is my six-year-old who really likes art but doesn't yet know that she probably also will like geometry i gave her a large compass in fact it's one that that you made that i bought uh, a couple of years ago it's the it's the large wooden compass it's easy for her to hold and i've uh started with hey here's a point What's a point? Let's talk about, here's how you describe a circle about that point using this compass. And for a few days, she was clumsy. But I had great satisfaction when just a couple of days ago, she came up into my office and she said, can I use a compass? I said, sure. So I handed her a compass. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick a point, any random point, And I want you to describe a circle about that point. So she does it. And then I said, now I want you to create a second uh, circle using the compass, don't change the radius, and put that center point of the second circle anywhere on the circumference of your first circle. And she didn't bat an eyelash. This is my six-year-old. And she picked another center point. She described the uh, second circle and knew that it created a vesica. And I just thought, this is, and she loves it. Then she gets out the coloring pencils and she starts coloring away at the shapes that emerge from the uh, the cross-cutting in the intersection of these circles. And she draws straight with a straight edge uh connects the points and makes triangles perfect equilateral triangles and she's fascinated with it you know and 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 so it's simple something like that that it's like well my daughter won't ever like math well of course she won't because she's going to have to learn it in the public education system and you've got people who aren't passionate about something teaching or trying to impose something on them but in fact you know use a little bit of art to get them coloring and you'll be surprised what they can come away with a younger skinnier guy with no gray hair this is like, well, this is probably 25 years ago. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know if this picture was taken, if it was a kid's class, adults, I don't remember. 
But, you know, what I'm doing here is I'm explaining, we've gotten up to the point where I would get, we would get to a certain level, you know, where we're dealing with two-dimensional geometry. And I said, okay, now we're going to segue from 2D to 3D. And then I would have the kids literally building the models of the platonic solids and the semi-regular Archimedean solids to really learn. And, I, you know, this is a diagram here that we actually drew in class so we could see the nesting relationships between, which are just truly remarkable. I've got a globe there because I would then translate, you know, geometry, you know, the measure of the earth. You know, this is what the term means. And so I would then use it to teach about latitude and longitude, how it was important to navigation, um, all that kind of thing. And here, this is the first year I just started. This was the first group that I had. This was the, the classroom in the church. And you can see here, they're all, they're all busy coloring and drawing. And this is like one of their early geometry lessons. The girl on the left doesn't look very excited about it, but the this, rest this, do. Well, that's actually a boy. Oh, well, he's, he's a, a handsome, handsome boy, boy with, with a lot of hair. Um, um, well, that, that boy doesn't look real he excited. He doesn't, but he actually was very enthusiastic. I guess he was just, oh, good. I don't know what. Bad thing picture was, timing. See, he was the only boy in this group of girls. So he, and, and oh, this is well, like one of the very first classes. So he's social he, distancing before yeah, it was cool. That's exactly what's going on there. He's feeling a little bit like, uh, but uh, yeah, eventually he just, you know, became that's you know, one of the the group and then well those kids are now my age those kids are going to be middle school age let's see they would have been well eighth or ninth graders and this is i think 95 so i was uh i was entering the well, ninth there we grade go. so th the, these kids yeah, are yeah. your age that's isn't the, that so yep so then hmm. this was another group that i had now i've got more points this is later on this is uh when was this uh Oh, 2002. So I had three boys, um, as it says here, these three homeschool boys who study science together in Decatur have won second place honors in a national science competition. The boys will receive $5,000 apiece and will spend a four-day weekend in June in Washington with their families and their math and science tutor, Randall Carlson of Decatur. The trio of 11 and 12-year-olds designed a way to move hospital patients on gurneys without pain. Their model, built with Lego blocks, uses superconducting magnets to allow a patient to float without feeling bumps as he or she is wheeled through corridors. Um, so Mark McGinnis, this little boy right here, said the idea for the project came when he was hospitalized after suffering a small stroke. There had to be a better way, he thought, as he was wheeled from one testing room to another. A few teeth rattling bounces while being whisked on and off elevators convinced him he shouldn't wait for anyone else to think of that better way. So we did, we got together and came up with this concept by studying, um, you know, uh, trains in Japan. Um, any, anyways, we, we came in second place. There were, what, uh, 13,355 students that entered so we got second place nationally. Little Mark, he uh, he had a thyroid condition. That's why he was having to be hospitalized. And he was a brilliant young kid and super enthusiastic, loved the class. Um, like at the end of the class, Mr. Carlson, 
what are we going to draw in the next class? And say, well, I think we'll draw a nine-sided figure. And he'd be, oh, that sounds so much fun. But um, regrettably, <laughs> about a year or two later, he passed away. Hmm. Which wow. was one of the things that when I went into this, I wasn't even on my radar screen that I would bond with these kids. And, and one of the boys that I had had, uh, name was Charlie. I'd had him from the age of, I think, 11 till 17 off and on. And then he was killed in a car wreck at 17. And that was tough. I had three of my students yeah. over those 15 years that met untimely deaths. And uh, wow. that that was something I was not even considering, but it was, yeah. it was hard. It was tough. Well, not that you become a parent to these kids. Uh, they have parents, but at the same time, that, that teacher-student yeah. relationship in this type of learning environment does create a unique connection that uh, I think is frankly missing from our current education yes. and system. here's the other thing that I did. Now, this was, I would organize field trips. So this is a geology field trip with homeschooled students in 2009 getting students out of the classroom into the real world of nature is vitally important to any system of education and promotes the psychological well-being of students. So what we would do is not far from here was a creek. So what we would do, we would go out to the creek after we'd had a heavy rain and we would do experiments. We would, we would use, for example, we would get a flotation device. We would I'd bring my 150 foot fiberglass uh, measuring tape. We would, lay it out along the creek. The kids, I'd have one kid, you know, go way down 150 feet holding the end of it. So we would then mark two places on the, the creek. We would bring a flotation, any kind of a little flotation device. It could be anything. Um, put that in the water, have a stopwatch to time how long it would take to move the 150 feet. Then we would go back to the classroom. We would get out one to 24,000 scale topographic maps we would figure out the channel geometry from the topographic maps. Oh, and while we're out in the field, after the rain, we would go out and we would look for indicators of high water marks. Now, this could be anything from a clump of leaves in the bow of a tree in the branches. It could be a, a, a piece of trash hanging on a bush. It could be, um, you know, a, a, a strand line etched on the side of the embankment. It could be sand deposited up on the floodplain. Any number of these things that we would use to figure out the high water mark. Then we would go back. I would teach the kids. We would have a lesson in proportions. So when we're talking about here's one to 24,000, what that means is we're talking about a proportionality constant where one inch on the map equals 24 inches in the 24,000 inches in the field. See, so we would learn to look. I would combine this stuff we would go, okay, now we're gonna learn about some hydrology. We're gonna figure out on the average flow of this creek, how many cubic feet per second flows by a given point, right? Okay, now we had this big rainstorm the other day. How much did the discharge increase from the average? And we would go back and then we, I would introduce a formula, like there's a formula that uh, hydrologists use called the Chesey formula. Very simple. It uses uh, stream profile geometry. It uses the gradient. It introduces a, uh, a variable that represents how the roughness, a coefficient of roughness. Because what happens is in a smooth conduit, it's one type of flow. In a conduit with 
obstructions and 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 things that introduce turbulence that will um, reduce the the flow. Okay, so we would I, so I would use these examples. We'd go out to the field. We would get this data. We would come back to the classroom, and then we would figure this stuff out. And the kids would be hundred percent engaged in it. You know, hundred percent they would be involved in figuring out. And then we would, you know, well, Mr. Carlson, I think I've got an answer here. I think that during that storm last weekend, the peak discharge was five times greater or ten times greater. And I said, and I said, yep, your calculations. Uh, confirm my calculations, right? So this is this is this thing that I'm showing here was something I tried to do regularly. And the, so the other thing to try to make the real world connections is bringing the, the the students, the classes out to the jobs that we were doing. I would go in the class. I would say, okay, we've just learned about a root two rectangle. Now let's design a building using that root two rectangle, and then. We'll go out to the job site and I'm going to show you how do we lay out this geometry on an actual building site? How do we use that geometry? How do we use the trigonometry to figure out how to build this staircase going up to the second floor or the roof? And I would take the kids back and we would go into the classroom and I would say, okay, let's figure out now that um, we want the, the roof to be this high. What's the angle or the pitch of the roof? You know, and so we would use trigonometry and then I would use trigonometry and then we'd go out to the job site. They would be able to see all of this stuff in action and they would see a, an actual building coming together. And so what I was trying to do in my philosophy of this was to try to connect what's happening abstractly in the classroom with how you integrate this to the real world. The other thing was, like, if you look at these kids here. I believe this boy here was probably 10 years old at the time. And this boy, I think, had just turned 17. So there's none of this artificial hierarchical um, segregation by age, right? And there's a natural dynamic that, in fact, this kid right here, I think this boy, I think he was nine, right? So one of the things I saw, the natural dynamic, is that the older kids would sort of, naturally mentor the younger kids, you know. Um, and I kind of remember back to my limited days in scouting, how you didn't have that horizontal stratification. You had, you know, you had a, you had the Cub Scouts, they would become Boy Scouts, and the Boy Scouts, you know, would have an age range, and the older kids are not bullying and dominating the younger kids because they've got older kids or young men who are like Eagle Scouts over them. And then you've got grown-ups. And so each of these age levels, it's like what's happened with, with public education. Now it's, everybody's thrown into this big pit and it's all kids your own age. Well, that's a completely uh, an artifact of the modern educational system. My father, until... Um, he got to high school, he was in a one-room schoolhouse where the ages were just like they are here. There was a spread of ages, right? After World War II, you know, like I said, we started going into this consolidation of local, locally controlled school districts and these gigantic factories. It really became the factory system of education. And what's happened is the educational, the, um, 
the, the quality of education has just gone down consistently since then. And now it's got to the point where you're better off just not, in my opinion, not even being part of it. Just go out on the street. You're going to learn more, you know, almost, but, but, um, yeah, I mean, I look at, you know, my last year of high school, I was just there to, you know, meet girls and have a good time. But once I got out of high school, that was around the time that summer that I had that epiphany at, at, uh, at the, on that camping trip, I'd been out of, you know, I mean, that was summer of 69. So I was class of 69. And that was, I always say, well, that's when my education really began. Once I got out of school, you know, um, so you didn't have things getting in the way of taking right. the time to learn. And so now what has happened yeah. is I had probably, I would add 120 to 150 kids that I tutored through these programs over 15 years. And I really began to see how dramatically different the mindset of kids that had been homeschooled compared to kids that had been institutionalized for, for years. And the relationship between these kids here and their parents. One of the things that I did, Matt, well, and I discovered the value of this early on, you know, I would I tried to make it very affordable. I would charge ten dollars an hour, um, and we would usually go two hours, and I would have anywhere from five to eight kids. So it's very affordable for the parents. It was pretty it was pretty good money for me for like a part time job. Um, typically, what we would do was we would gather and for the first fifteen minutes, we would just you know converse you know, socialize, have fun, find out what you guys do over the week. My goal was to have one and a half hours of good, solid instruction. But I would block two hours so that we could, the kids could, you know, it, it made it fun for them. They would come there and say, oh, what'd you do, Mark, over the weekend? Well, I did such and such. We went to, we went to the beach. Really? What'd you do there? And, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, somebody just, oh, man, we just saw the new, um, uh, Lord of the Rings movie. That was great. You know, and I would say, well, did you guys know anything about J.R.R. Tolkien and how he was influenced by world, what his experiences in World War One in the trenches? And so we could use that to kind of segue into this, you know, digression about whatever, something cultural, something historical or whatever. And the kids really loved it. They, they loved it, being able to engage in that, you know, they wanted to hear about uh, times prior to their life. Um, and then we would, you know, 20 minutes of that or whatever. And it was, okay, let's get down. Let's pick up where we left off last week with the, you know, the, you know, drawing these nested solids. So then we would spend 90 minutes doing that. So out of that, I came to, you know, and I'm just kind of like hitting the high points of this, but, but I really came to believe that, you know, my experience has shown me directly that there are alternatives to this warehousing of students and the, and the way we've got this system now. Because really, when I started doing this in the 90s, that's really when the decline really began to accelerate. So I got a lot of kids of that 120 to 150 kids. A lot of them had been homeschooled from the beginning. But there was a lot of them who got up, like, particularly to middle school. They couldn't hack it and they got in trouble or 
they just got to the point where they, they hated it so much they couldn't go. And so I got a bunch of those kids. So what, that was mm-hmm. another eye-opening thing for me was that like almost like trying to unbrainwash these kids and say, look, we're having fun here, you know. And, you know, I expect you to behave and all of this. And, you know, I had a few, like Mark's younger brother, when I got him, he had issues. You know, Mark, the, the young man that passed mm-hmm. away. The kid yeah, who passed away. Two years younger than his brother. His brother passed away and he he was having issues, right? And mm-hmm. But we worked it out. You know, we worked it out. I, had, I sat down, we talked, we, you know, kind of after hours, I would get with him. And he was also a really naturally talented musician. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try to work in some some music ideas and theory into our classes. And as soon as I did that, oh, okay, I see, oh, okay, I can see how this math now might connect. Well, that was what opened my eyes to going, yeah, well, here, this this kid has become engaged now because we were able to deviate away from some standardized curriculum. This is what you have. Rigid. To. We right. were able to segue away, and I was able to show him these connections. Boom, he came right back in, and hmm. you know, the rest of the year he did great. So out of all of this, I came up with this idea that there's got to be a different way. And since then, I've talked to a number. I've got quite a few friends that I've met over the years that were public school teachers that had to quit. They couldn't stand it anymore, particularly within the last decade or so. Um, And so I really have now become convinced that, you know, revamping the educational system of this country is critical, vitally important to getting this country back on the right track and, you know, reestablish ideas of merit. And, you know, I discovered the kids loved you know, we would have competitions, but it was always a friendly competition, um, you know, and there was no stigma. If you if you didn't, you know, there would always be somebody who would, who would you know, I would give homework assignments. Um, oh, the other thing that I did that I wanted to, to, to bring into the conversation was this. I would charge $10 an hour, right? You could see the from the photograph I had, that was quite a big room, right? And there was a lot of tables folded up I could set up in there. So here's what I did. I, When the parents would come and, you know, we'd make an agreement. Yeah, you bring in, you know, Joey and he can become part of the class and, you know, whatever, whatever. Here's what I would offer. If you're paying for your kid and as long as there was room and there was always room, parents were free to participate. Hmm. So I... What yeah, a novel I always idea. had two or three parents in the class. And, and how that how that came about was because meeting in the church, there was a church parking lot. And, and at first, I mean, it was like the second year, maybe. The mother would bring her, I think it was her son, bring her son to class, drop him off. He would come in to class and she would wait out in the car. And I, I once I noticed she was waiting out in the car, I said, well, come on in, you know, you don't just sit out here in the car, come on in, enjoy you mind if I do, I said no, come on in, she came in and it turned out she was a really great enhancement to the class because she actually would help to keep kind of guiding things you know, if we'd get off track, you know and I quickly discovered, you know, she got in, you know, I made her get 
uh, you know, the drawing books, I, you know, the sketch pads, and she was doing all the exercises. So then, and she was having so much fun with it. She would go home with her kid and they would do their homework together. So I thought this is really a good thing. I'm going to really encourage this. So I would encourage parents to participate. I even had grandparents coming in. I had one, it was two kids, brother and a sister. I think it was the mother and the grandmother all took the course together. And then they would go home and sit there around the kitchen table doing their homework, their drawing assignments and stuff together. And that really turned out to be a really good thing, right? And I noticed something about, too, the dynamic between, like, back when I was, like, middle school, high school, nobody really, you know, your parents were not cool. You know, you didn't want anything really. You didn't want your parents around, you know, this and that. You had your peers that you hung out with, and that's who you took all your signals from and your values and your parents were kind of this other, you know, mm-hmm. when you start getting into the homeschooling thing, that whole dynamic changes completely because we would right. go, I have, you know, outings I did like here, just, we happened to snap this picture this day, but I had outings where the parents would come with, you know, out onto the field trips or they would come over to the job. And as it turned out, I actually got some, some jobs out of it. The parents would come and they go, oh, this is really nice what you guys are doing here. Well, say we were thinking about building a sunroom, you know, so then I would actually end up getting a, a job out of the out of the deal. But so bringing all this together, because I know we got to end this. What I've been doing now is putting all of this stuff together into a concept for an alternative form of education that would be both tailored to adults and to young people and children and uh, yeah, bringing the academic world and the intellectual world and the real world together as a unity. And so my concept is taking these principles of the ancient design, the sacred geometry, and all these other principles that we can talk about in future podcasts, how the astronomy was incorporated into the building of a temple or the layout of a village, um, you know, how those things were incorporated. What I'm this, this what I'm really planning to do now is to bring these these archaic sciences and traditions together in a 21st century manifestation. How would we use the principles of archaeoastronomy in, in 2022? How would we use the principles of sacred geometry and harmonic design that were utilized by the ancients? How can we kind of create this fusion between the contemporary and the archaic? And how can we update those principles to create a world? Because see that one of the keys of what makes sacred geometry sacred, as opposed to simple secular geometry, is this idea that there's a philosophical component. And the underlying idea is harmony. Harmony between all of these disparate elements that go up to make our world that there are certain geometric principles that can create balance, symmetry, and harmony. And this is what the ancients were striving for. They were striving for creating a world around them that reflected these patterns of harmony and linked that which was here below with the greater world above, um, whether you look at it as the astronomical realm or the realm of the divine or whatever. And um, I think that a time has come that we need to really uh, 
you know, evolve alternatives to this the factory system that we've got now that isn't working anymore. And I don't have the final answers, but experiments need to begin and begin now. We can't really delay. So this is why at this point, there's a group of people that are coming together around this, these ideas. We're actively looking for land. Um, and because it's uh, in my backyard, we're kind of focused right now on Eastern Tennessee for multiple reasons that we can, um, we can get elaborate upon in another discussion. Um, but, you know, I've established criteria. I've got a list, a, a, a short list of places where a school slash community could be developed. Um, my own backyard, like I said, there's, you know, the Southern Appalachians, but I'm also looking at several places elsewhere, including your neck of the woods. Idaho. Idaho. I think. Yes. Washington. Yes. Somewhere. Right. What I like about. Good. Well, it's yeah. beautiful. Oh, I know. Here. In fact, I'm I'm kind of biased, but I'd like you to move it out here and uh, plant it somewhere out here so it's close to my well, neck of the woods. See, here's well, here's the deal. Um, that can happen. We just need somebody who's going to kind of spearhead it. And um, I'm now thinking, hmm, who might be a good candidate for that? I'll think yeah, on see, that. If you can come up with any names. I'll tell you what. Um, oh. All right. I'll tell you wherever it's at. I'll be happy to come visit and um, yeah. And participate yeah, well, somehow. I've, so, but I'll tell you, I don't. I don't think there's any better person uh, that I know to to undertake this particular project and to try and uh, establish a better education system that incorporates, that integrates, and harmonizes uh, both reality and and philosophy or theory, and um, and some of these academic disciplines that you've uh, talked through here on the show. And I. Uh, the more time I spend getting into your material, the the more I'm impressed to think that uh, one of the reasons that we fail to learn or be excited about learning in the modern age is because a lot of our academic experience is so divorced from uh, reality. And that's why it's important to me to bring up some of the concepts that we have today. You know, one last point on that, and then I'll give you the last word as we wrap up the episode uh, and and discuss what you've got on the screen there. There's a lot of clamor right now about diversity. And that word and others are thrown around, uh, but the word does, the word has been usurped yes. like so many other words and yes. it's been redefined. And what you described with your homeschool uh, process where you tailor an education to a young person's specific talents, inclinations, desires, and help their uh, creative imagination blossom is a real kind of diversity of edu of academic experience that I think would greatly benefit humanity. It's not the pretended kind of diversity that's simply based on either racial or mm -hmm. other quotas uh, that divorces ourselves from merit, that divorces ourselves from our natural mm -hmm. abilities. I think we lose a great deal, both in the military where I hearken from and uh, throughout the university when uh, a, a usurped, redefined diversity has taken the place of an authentic diversity that in fact, as paradoxical as it sounds, can even foster some mm -hmm. harmony. Uh, and harmonizing that diversity of, of the human, mm -hmm. um, uh, of human aptitude and, and inclination and so forth, I think 
there, there's a beauty in that that we're really missing out on today. So uh, thank you for doing that work. I think it's phenomenal. Well, we'll see important. where it goes. And the way it's looking, you know, I was on a few months ago, it's on Joe Rogan's show. I mentioned, I just talked about this for about 20 minutes at the end of the show. And within, I don't know, within a week, 10 days, two weeks at the most, we've had six over 600 communications of people responding positively, people who like know that there's something that needs to happen, who maybe hadn't actually given a form or a shape to it yet. And then they heard me articulating the idea that there is, that we need alternatives and we have prototypes for those alternatives all about us. We just need to start assembling the pieces into a coherent whole. And um, yeah, some, so we're getting a great core group of people just incredibly high quality people that are coming together around this idea. And I'm going to be developing a newsletter around it. So sign up for the newsletter. Where can people sign up for the newsletter? Just go to randallcarlson.com. That's my website. Or, you know, my podcast is cosmographia.com where, you know, I explore in depth a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, mostly the, the geology and the, the impact the astronomy and all that, the stuff we're going to be talking about in our next interview. We're absolutely going to talk about Younger Dryas. We're going to talk about Tunguska impact stuff. I think... I won't I won't start by <laughs> asking a question okay. about Freemasonry. Well, amazingly enough, what we may do is uh, I may, since we talked about Freemasonry, once we get into that kind of stuff, I'll say, oh, by the way, okay. Matt, we'll circle back. Now that you know about this and that, let's go back and look at some of the Masonic symbolism, and uh, maybe you'll see some of this in a new light. But Well, that's excellent. I'll tell you, uh, speaking of Joe Rogan, we're, we're like at Joe Rogan length here. We're two and a half hours into today's episode, which is great for those who are seeking understanding. And um, and also on that Joe Rogan podcast, I think you, know, you brought up my name on that last episode that you did with him, and he said, he moved to Idaho. What's in Idaho? Oh. And... Uh, is they, they must know a secret. Joe Rogan oh. asked that question. And I'm looking at your screen here, and um, it says, scientists discover a major lasting benefit of growing up outside the city. And uh, that's part of the reason I moved to Idaho. Yeah. I believe there's some lasting benefit of growing Absolutely. up outside the city. And it's been yeah. great here. Yeah. This was just, a, this is interesting research. Um, this is where we can leave it. Um, what we found is that the childhood experience of green space can actually predict mental health in later life. The people that reported more exposure to nature actually have better mental health than those that don't even, even after we adjust for exposure at the time of the interview when they are adults. Um, yeah, see, uh, let's see. Uh, exposure to green and blue spaces is far more than just a luxury for kids growing up without regular exposure to nature seems to have ripple effects that persist into adulthood, according to research published Tuesday in the International Journal of Environmental Health and Public Health. Um, so yeah, everything uh, is better in, in kids growing up with exposure to nature. Um, and this is actually, we can maybe dive into this a little bit more in detail in the future discussion here. Um, so yeah, this is showing actual structural changes positive, beneficial structural changes that take place in the brains of kids when they are exposed to nature. Um, 
His earlier work showed that exposure, this uh, Nguyen, Huxin, whatever his name, earlier work showed that exposure to green space was linked to structural changes in the white and gray matter volume in the brain, suggesting that there might be a causal relationship between cognitive development and exposure to green space. And absolutely there is. Um, and, you know, there's so many kids now that are spending their time, you know, doing this on television, on computers. There's a place for that. But when you get a kid that's 12 years old, that's never seen the Milky Way, for example, never been out under, you know, a, a night sky, have never really looked at the night sky because they're living in an urban environment, surrounded by concrete, surrounded by buildings, you know, that hem them in. So they never see an expansive open meadow or, you know, a distant horizon or seeing the moon rising over the distant horizon. These are things that not only kids, but adults need to have these kinds of experiences. So that is why I'm looking at rural land because, well, for one thing, rural land, you've got greater freedom to build but also because it provides an opportunity for people to get out and away from the urban environment, the, the so-called rat race that we used to term we used to use in my day. And this is why I think these tours that I've been doing seem to be becoming really popular because two things are happening. People are getting exposed to really awesome landscapes, nature in its glory, but also forming communities. I mean, this tour that we've got coming up in Montana, I think there's probably 10 or 12 people on that tour that are like, this is their second, third, even fourth tour that they've done with us. And I've had multiple comments and feedback that I've gotten that as much as people love the, the grandeurs of these landscapes and learning to decipher and read these landscapes and things, they're also enjoying the, the camaraderie and the community of like-minded people that's coming together around these experiences. And so the thing that I've started doing now is initially it was only adults. The last two tours I've done, we've had some kids. So I've started encouraging, bring your kids, you know, maybe not infants, but I've had an infant on the tour. Um, no problem. The mom, there was a couple times the mom had to take off to deal with the infant, but I've had, we've had some nine and 10 year olds on the tours and they were awesome. And they brought in a whole other kind of energy. And it was just infectious to see how much they were excited about what we were doing. One of the little boys on the spectrum named Connor. I love that kid. He would come very, um, like I say, on the spectrum, but obviously a very intelligent boy. I think he was, what was he, maybe 10? Anyways, he brought his telescope. We would get back to the resort after being out in the day and he would go down there was a lake there next to soap lake he would go down set up his telescope and then everybody would gather around and he would set up his telescope to a particular star or galactic cluster or constellation and then he would he would discourse on what we were looking at and he just loved i mean you know then the uh, the adults would come down <laughs> and he was able to shine show off what he knew mm -hmm. on on the last couple of tours we had a little uh, uh, a great lady, Patty, I think she's going to be, I think you'll meet her. Um, she's going to be, I think she's on the Montana tour. She had a little nine-year-old girl named Sophie. And she, first thing she did when she called up, she says, well, what's your policy on kids? Can I, 
I have a nine-year-old, and I, I can I can do this if I can bring my nine-year-old. I, bring your nine-year-old. I mean, is she re- reasonably well-behaved? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, bring her, no problem. So she comes and brings Sophie, and that, I remember the first day, Sophie didn't say much. She was pretty shy, didn't, you know, didn't interact with people too much. You know, she was the only, it was all adults. She's nine years old. By day four, mm-hmm. she's like totally one of the group. She's singing, laughing, playing jokes on people, um, totally engaged, totally interacting. We're out and, you know, she's walking along, listening attentively to what we're looking at. Pretty soon, she's even expounding her own ideas about what we're seeing. And and, and it was really great. And I it was the impression that I had was like, what? Well, she doesn't even like know that she's it's she's a nine year old and everybody else is an adult. She's just part of this group. You know, so then the next one, uh, Clyde came, brought his nine-year-old son. And, of course, Sophie was there. They totally hit it off, became best friends, and same thing. And so that has really confirmed to me how, you know, how valuable it is to get kids out and get kids interacting at different ages with grown-ups, you know, because, look, that's how kid look, look think about archaic societies at least like for boys and i'm sure that the that, that girls had the had the, the parallel uh way of uh, so becoming socialized but you know when a boy got to be adolescent you would go through a, typically a, an initiation type of ceremony after which you were considered a grown-up you're expected now to become integrated into grown-up society Traditional societies have believed that from adolescence on, you begin integrating the children into grown-up society. You don't sequester them, you know, until they're of college. And see, now college age, college has just become a big babysitting institution, where instead of learning to, out, to go out and deal with the, the, the real rigors and diversity of the real world, they're being sheltered into this, like, oh, safe spaces, microaggressions, like, what? What? You're effing 20 years old. What do you, you know, I, I, I can't fathom it. I mean, when I was 20 years old, I'm out there, you know, working on who knows what. You know, I did a million different kinds of jobs and never complained about it at all. Well, think if the ancients could see what's happening in our to, to our adolescents turned young adults today. I mean, I think uh, wasn't Aristotle Alexander the Great's tutor for a couple of years before he went off and conquered the world, and he was like fourteen to sixteen years old or something when he's in the tutelage. Yeah, I mean, Benjamin Aristotle. Franklin was running a print shop at twelve. You know, he was running. You know, um, I mean, we could go on yeah. all kinds of examples. Too bad. It's very sad. Very but sad. we're gonna we're gonna. We're going to turn it around. Let's let's end this here. The Randall Carlson Project and the Sanctuary, or or, or in other words, the Sanctuary Project, uh, which you didn't say that name. Hope it's okay that I'm saying that name, but you've got a website with that name. um, Is is, uh, a good answer to some of these problems we're talking about here, where we get to discuss many of the things. If uh, you're listening to this show or this episode and not watching it, I'd highly recommend, based on some of the slides that Randall has showed you, jump on the YouTube channel, Matt Lohmeyer, or uh, visit the show on Rumble, some uh, platform where you're able to watch uh, what it is that Randall's presented. I think you'll get more out of uh, today's discussion. But 
This is the end of uh, part three in a series of interviews I'm doing with Randall Carlson to talk about apparently a host and range of things. Uh, Randall, thanks for joining me today. Well, I enjoyed every second of it, Matt. Um, yeah, I think you're a great interviewer, and considering you're just getting started, I think the sky's the limit, and I see no reason why you're not going to have tens of thousands of listeners soon. And uh, it's an Good. honor and a privilege for me to join you in these conversations, and I look forward to us doing it again soon.